Okay, we only have a few minutes before the coppers show up, so grab whatever you can, just like we rehearsed. Get that Picasso, the one of the lady. None of them look like ladies, and I know ladies. All right, well, grab that Monet, then. This one? That's a mayonnaise. This one. That's mayonnaise. Get out of the kitchen. Should I take this one with the soup can on it? Is it a Warhol? It's, a uh, Campbell's. I'm still in the kitchen. All right. All right, take it. And grab that Syrah, the one of the trees. This is a bunch of dots. Take a step back. Oh, it's... Beautiful. Grab it and let's go. But wait. What? How could he make something like this out of a bunch of dots? Like every single individual dot comes together to make something greater and more beautiful than a dot itself. It's, I see now that's how humanity works. How every single dot's actions can ruin it for the better painting of life. How could I be so selfish to take this painting for myself and ruin it for all the other dots out there? Daniel, we need to leave this here. It was selfish to steal it so we could hang it above our fireplace and throw darts at it. Greg, that was beautiful. But we were arrested 20 seconds ago. Is that who those guys were? They said we're getting 70 years for taking that can of soup. It was a Campbell's. Chunky. Classic introduction in the English language. Yeah, we shake hands, we look each other in the eye, hello, hello. Four pumps, hello. <laughs> Five pumps is best friends, six pumps, six lovers. Pumps. You don't want to see what happens at six pumps. <laughs> I never made it to a sixth pump. <laughs> Welcome to episode, I want to, uh, 25. Yeah, 25. Our podcast can now rent a car without an adult. And about time, too. <laughs> I'm sick of signing for this Hyundai, <laughs> that this podcast is driving straight to the road of success. <laughs> hello, Daniel. Hello, Greg. Hello, listener. Hello, mystery guest that we will not introduce during this show because he's a little tired from the movie he just released. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all that press he had to do and all those questions he had to answer. Yeah. Sorry, JJ, but I know you want to rest during this episode. All right. Dynamite. Welcome to the year 2016. We made it. The world didn't end like I was predicting on January 31st or December 31st. We found the extended Aztec calendar and it's still, the world still didn't end. It was the Aztec personal planner that we found. (laughs) This month's episode, we're going to be covering some of the museums, the fine art museums we have in this city. Yeah, we already did. We already covered uh, the Getty Museum in Mm -hmm. a previous episode. So that that. was a... That was a relief not having to research that one. So this one, we're going to cover the other big ones with the exception of one for the sake of time we didn't get into. It seems to be a very strange story that's going to get its own bonus episode. So sorry, Armin Hammer fans. Yeah. You're going to have to wait a little bit longer. So I'll start us off. I'm going to be covering the Fisher Museum of USC. I'm going to be covering MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art. Well, don't spoil it. Oh, I thought we wanted to tell them ahead of time so they don't waste their time. You, you don't understand art. Okay. <laughs> you don't know art. I saw the dots. I saw the sign. I opened up my eyes. And I saw the dots. <laughs> but you don't know art like I am. Do you even suffer for what you do? <laughs> I cut off my ear for you and this podcast. Which ear? My middle one <laughs> that I breathe through. I'm highly evolved. That's why I don't want pictures of us out. The world isn't ready. No, they're not. One picture of us means 50 unsubscribes. <laughs> and then we owe the internet 20 subscribes. <laughs> I want to show everyone what I look like. I'm six foot two. Beautiful flowing golden hair. My eyes are every color. Depending on what mood you're in. 
we're going to do this semi-chronologically, sort yeah. of where it begins in the city, and then the big one that you're probably thinking of, that's everything else that we talk of from then there on sort of branches out of. Yeah. So let's get it started, Greg. Take us to where it all began. The uh, first painting, Fade In, <laughs> France, 40,000 BC, it was cave paintings. The first- Beautiful. The city's first museum slash gallery that was dedicated to fine arts was created from the collection of Elizabeth Holmes Fisher, another in a long stream of progressive and dutiful women of Los Angeles, sort of in line with librarian Mary Foy and Christine Sterling, who yeah. created Elmero Street. Created what? Elmero oh. Street. And China oh, I city. love that museum. <laughs> I, I'm going to get into it also that like women, again, this is another sort of thing that yeah. women sort of were responsible for. Yeah, yeah. They were heavy pushers on this. Because all the men them. wanted to take over. They wanted to take the art and just rock and roll all over it. But the women said, no, no, this yeah, is yeah. for appreciation. No, boys, we can't have a museum of just nudes. <laughs> what about semi-nude? <laughs> what about if it's just like little cherubs naked? <laughs> I'll take that. We said we think that's cute. Women like cute things like <laughs> naked angels. Let's get back to Fisher, please. She was a philanthropist and like many other women that we mentioned, she had this grand vision of the city before she even started making the motions to get it ready. She kind of had this idea of like, well, that's what I eventually want to get to. She was described by many as a conservative Christian woman of modest means who came to Los Angeles in 1893 with her husband and three children. Mrs. Holmes was born in Illinois in September of the way long ago year of 1867. She was the eldest of... Did years even exist back then? I don't even know how they did numbers. (laughs) Did you say she was the eldest of 1867? She was the Elvis of 1867, that gold jumper, dancing in the desert before Vegas was even there. (laughs) She was the eldest of eight children, or as her parents knew her, the babysitter. (laughs) While attending college in Nebraska, she meets and goes on to marry Walter Harrison Fisher, which is a great name, and thus becoming Elizabeth Holmes Fisher. Mm -hmm. After they got married, Elizabeth gave birth to two girls, Ruth and Rachel, and the family of four moves to South Dakota, where the Fishers add a son, Walter Jr. While there, Walter Sr. is working for an insurance company. Now, it must not work out great because the family of five then moved to Oakland, California with only $25 to the Fisher name. But hey, back in 1892, $25 can buy you a lot. <laughs> Goodbye you a lot. museum. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye you a Picasso before he was even Picasso. <laughs> when Five. he was still Picasso so. <laughs> when he was still drawing people like they were people. <laughs> As if they were people. <laughs> <laughs> so the Fisher spent a year in Oakland, and then in 1893, they moved to Los Angeles. Walter begins working at the Mutual Benefit Life Insurance Company in the newly built Bradbury Building on Broadway, and newly built. Wow. Like, it was built like that year. Interesting. Was Subway there yet? Yeah, Subway's always been there. <laughs> it's always been there. They built it around the Subway. <laughs> it was a real Subway, though, at the time. But they sold sandwiches. It was weird. The trains were made of bread. <laughs> he ends up doing very well for himself in the insurance game. Come 1900, the turn of the century, Walter Sr. starts looking into stocks and bonds and invested the family's savings. Risky move. <laughs> into an oil well in Long Beach, I believe in Signal Hill. And guess what happened after that? Gold spewed out of it. Mm-hmm. Liquid gold. Texas tea. <laughs> the well struck. And of course, the fishers become, you know, wealthy after this. Ah, Swimming in wealthy. Well, so, so there it is. <laughs> Money comes in. In 1904, the fishers were able to build a home on the western outskirts of the city and what was described as a small country road, which now goes by the name of Wilshire Boulevard. <laughs> their side of their home is now, I believe, directly across from Bullock's Wilshire. Hmm. Hmm. Bullocks. <sighs> the Fisher did exceptionally well after that and started integrating into LA social clubs. Walter joined the athletic club. The Fisher family as a whole were part of the LA country club and the first Methodist church. Elizabeth was the head of a young people's church society. Walter Sr. passed in 1926, but succeeded in leaving his wife and children very wealthy. And after his death, Elizabeth continued to create a legacy for the Fisher family. It's not clear whether Walter was still alive when she was able to travel abroad, but I did notice at some point Elizabeth sailed around the world from San Francisco in about 1935, 1936. Yeah. I've always wanted to do something Me like too. that. I want to do 
doing a hot air balloon with Jules Verne, but he's dead. No. <laughs> don't, no. Don't tell me Greg, that. no. What about Poe? And the other greats. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft? H.G. Wells? H.P. the printer company? B.P. the oil company? Greg, don't break my heart right now. Please, it's too early in the episode. Save that for Act 3. <laughs> but these trips around the world, any trips she might have taken with Walter, did help her refine her interest in fine art. And by the age of 61, she began collecting art and soon had one of the finest art collections. Her particular taste seemed to be for English and Dutch masters. While her collection grew, so did her place in high society. But certainly by no accident. She was one of the first organizers of the Ebal Club, a classy women's organization that focused on education and philanthropy. And in 1936, she became the president of that. Their current slogan on their website is the glamour, the elegance, the legacy, the Ebal. <laughs> I like it. I wish I could join, but I can't. <laughs> Why not? We could Mrs. Doubtfire our way into Ebal. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Get your finest gown. Fisher was also a lifetime member of... too many to choose from. <laughs> Fisher was also a lifetime member of Town and Gown, which is a USC women's club. She was a co-chairman of the Art Noon Club, a member on the board of the LA Art Association, and a trustee of the California College in China Foundation. That same year, in 1936, Fisher and her friend May Amarad Harris donated funds to add the Little Chapel of Silence to the USC campus. The Little Chapel of Silence is a beautiful, small little building, and with a very creepy name. <laughs> Better not misbehave. You know where you're going. <laughs> the Noise hole? No. <laughs> tut tut, little boy. <laughs> she was soon appointed to the University Board of Trustees and was the first woman to serve in that capacity. Look mm-hmm. at her. She did one even better when she got her friend, May Amaron Harris, again, appointed to become the second woman on the USC Board of Trustees. Her three kids also went to USC, so it seemed only natural for her to try to find a strong footholding, you know, and make herself known there, and that's exactly what she did. A year later, in 1937, the president of USC, Dr. Rufus Von Kleinschmidt, a name I, s- I swear we've said that name on the podcast before. When you just said it, I was like, that sounds really familiar, yeah. but then I realized because you asked me about it a few days ago, but it does sound familiar. It sounds familiar. It, it's going to come up. Hey, write us an email if you've heard this before. <laughs> or if you are Rufus Von Kleinschmidt. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. How, How did you live this long? What is your secret? Is it ginseng? Is this in it? Just tell I us. I it. It's just ginseng. It. Just text us. Text us. Just text us a ginseng emoji and we'll know. <laughs> Anyways, Dr. Von Kleinschmidt announced that a new building dedicated to the College of Architecture and Fine Arts would be named after its donor, May Amarad Harris, and the gallery that would be adjoined to it would be named after its donor, Elizabeth Holmes Fisher, who donated $50,000 for the art gallery to be built. And in November of 1939, the Fisher Gallery opened up on the USC campus. At the opening ceremony, which saw over like a thousand attendees, Fisher said that to her, art is a spiritual force, uplifting and ennobling the human spirit. Fisher not only funded the building, after it was dedicated to her, she donated 29 paintings to the campus with a promise of more to come. And in the end, she would donate 74 paintings to the campus gallery, which included works of Dutch and Flemish masterworks, American landscapes, British portraits, and French Barbizon landscapes. And during the early 40s, she began collecting for the gallery itself and focused on the American art movement known as Hudson River School, which were American landscapes. They were special in that they were the first kind of the generation of artists born in the United States who were applying techniques that they learned from the Romantic era and applying them to American sceneries. And it was all along the Hudson. That's my favorite Hendrix song. It's all (laughs) along the Hudson. You can find works of the Hudson River School in the gallery from artists like Albert Birchstadt, Thomas Cole, Thomas Dowie, Asher Durand. She has a very nice collection. She also had a love for British portraits of the 17th and 18th centuries. You can find works there from Thomas Gainsbourg, George Henry Harlow, Alan Ramsey, George Moreland. Now, some of the most renowned pieces of her collection were uh, St. John the Evangelist from Flemish painter Anthony Van Dyck, the portrait Mrs. Burroughs from Thomas Gainsborough, Jean-Francois Millet's Hanging Out the Laundry, just to name uh, three. For Fisher, this was more than just like a simple donation. 
information though. She believed that for students to become well-rounded and more educated, they needed to be exposed to art and she wished that the accessibility to her pieces would not only motivate other collectors to donate but make art a more essential part of Los Angeles. Part of the stipulation she left for the gallery that they would never charge admission. So to this day, it's free of charge to the public, to any students that are welcome to come in the Fisher Museum and check everything out. Fisher really did though believe heavily in that art had the ability to change people's minds. She was quoted as saying, art and music are really great constructive forces that we must respect and cherish. They are a solace to men and women in the midst of troubled world. In times of fear, ugliness, and waste, we turn to the artist. And that's something that, you know, any gallery to the day, any museum is going to still uphold any ideal like that. Elizabeth Fisher died in 1955 in a hospital in Santa Barbara at the age of 88. A year prior, she had a heart attack and she had been in ill health since then. She left behind her three children, six grandchildren, and 13 great-grandchildren. How could she abandon them? What are they going to do without... Gammy. And great Gammy. <laughs> her wish that other art collectors would donate to the Fisher Gallery was granted after her death. In 1965, industrialist and supposed Soviet spy Armin Hammer donated 50 pieces from the collection, which included paintings and prints by Peter Paul Rubens, which was the, I think he donated Venus Wounded by the Thorn and also the Adoration of the Shepherds. In 1989, after a long application process, the gallery became accredited by the American Association of Museums. I've read that a panel of museum directors made a three-day visit to the gallery and they interviewed like everybody from like the provost down to the student interns. I think every museum has to go through that. But actually, it's one of the few accredited museums in LA, which means that they follow the museum standard and regulations of appropriate museum work set by the American Alliance of Museums. <laughs> so, during the 90s, they changed the name of the place from the Fisher Gallery to the USC Fisher Museum of Fine Art. Just to drive it home that this is not just a gallery, but this is like a place of preservation and they're displaying these great works of art. Some of the exhibitions at the Fisher sound really interesting and I'm really bummed that I missed them, but I probably wasn't, you know, I was probably like five. Uh, 17 contemporary <laughs> Mexican artists was a show they had in 1989 and it showed like different artists in the art scene in Mexico. Keepers of the Flame was a show in 1990 which showed the works of 26 unofficial Russian artists. Mm, I bet Armin Hammer liked that one. Jenny Holcher's Blacklist which is a permanent installation dedicated to the Hollywood 10 and the Cold War era. That sounds really neat. Mm. And also the James Spader TV show. It actually just show the James Spader TV show. This will be popular in 20 years. Popular <laughs> is a relative term. <laughs> one of their more popular shows. The media is splintered. <laughs> uh, one of their more viewers means more. <laughs> one of their more popular shows with Jire the Plastic Ocean which was really well covered. It got noticed by Huffington Post. It got noticed by Artillery. It was one of the things that they're still getting talked about. The Fisher Gallery now has about 2,000 objects in the collection. Elizabeth Holmes Fisher's legacy continues on as her collection and the gallery continues to mix art and education and they're like a light for art lovers in LA to draw to. And it's still like an old building. Like it still preserved the 40s architecture. Like they yeah. renovated it but they still have a lot of the old architecture inside which is really neat. I wonder like because these museums have so many paintings that yeah. are just like in storage where like are they just like dishes stacked on top of each other like where do they have room for all of these things they're wrapped in cloth and they're like put on racks I'm pretty sure if how are there that many racks this is the podcast where we ask important questions like how are there that many racks where are they getting these racks huh we're asking the hard questions <laughs> where is USC getting all their racks come on America wake up open your eyes <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it's either racks with really important paintings wrapped in cloth or it's something like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> That's where the Ark is at the <laughs> Fisher Museum. I'm okay with it there. Right now they have an exhibition going on called 2020 A Salarando which is a completely immersive installation and performance by an artist named Lita Albuquerque. Here's something interesting that I mm. dug up. Other than that her name is Albuquerque? As if her name isn't the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> in 1983 Albuquerque had another show at the Fisher, Abasa and interesting enough that's the same year that Return of the Jedi came out and look where we are now. 
wow. Albuquerque's back. The Force is back. Albuquerque Awakens. But it sounds like a really good show. It's it's gonna have like a video installation and projector. It sounds really like inclusive to like patrons and stuff. So it sounds really good. I think we should go. You know what? Book a ticket. Put your shoes on. Put on your art shoes and your art gloves to touch all the art. Because we want you touching everything. (laughs) But no, they'll arrest you. If you want any more information about Fisher, you can go to fisher.usc.edu. They'll give you all you need to know. So this is basically the first dedicated fine arts museum in the city. Yeah. Okay. And it's right there at USC, which is nice. Free. It's located, if you're interested, on the south side of USC campus, bordering Exposition Boulevard between Figueroa and Watt Way in Harris Hall, which is named after May Amara Harris, which is her friend. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. finally got their own buildings they're, next door to each other they're always high-fiving each other with brick <laughs> so that may have been the first dedicated art museum mm-hmm. let's talk about big daddy i don't like this put me to bed let's not wake daddy lacma oh no 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 i don't want to hear about this daniel what's lacma lacma is the story of los angeles <laughs> sleepy pueblo town <laughs> Fade in on a painting of a sleepy Pueblo town. <laughs> You're in LACMA, baby. The story of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is long and complicated and vast, and in a lot of parts, not very interesting. But I found that the most interesting and cohesive way to tell its story is an example of how a public art museum grows and expands and how the director of museum and its donors and curators can change the museum's direction and sculpt what was just an art collection into a world-class museum. That sounds terrifying. Well, you're going to have to... You're going to have to learn how to do this because I can't run this museum forever. Oh, no. Is that why you brought me into this factory? Is that why you gave me the golden ticket? Because now I have to do work? Run home, Charlie. (laughs) You lose. (laughs) Good day, sir. LACMA is an encyclopedic art museum. So it doesn't... What does that even mean? (laughs) It means that it doesn't just focus on one thing. Uh. So some areas of it are stronger than others, but the story is how these certain areas became strong and how certain areas aren't given the nurturing they need and turn into the Greg and Dan. Daniels of the art world. High five on that. Oh, I would, but our phones are way too weak and I'm, unnurtured. I'm to so brittle. <laughs> I'm just so brittle. Let's do it anyway. <laughs> it's rain and bone. Hallelujah. <laughs> Ooh, my throat. And it, so it began, it all began dismally on November 6th, 1913 in Exposition Park with the opening of the Los Angeles Museum of History, Science, and Art. Three boring things. No, that sounds really neat, actually. Well, listen, well, you know, shut up. So for once in your life, just, you know, I'm talking. The museum had no art of its own, so it had a collection loaned to it for the opening, I believe, from the Fine Arts League. Uh-huh. After the opening, the art was given back and there was no art in the museum. And they didn't even have money to get any art either oh. but they did have an art curator start painting quick his name was everett maxwell and before long they bought their first painting cliff dwellers by george bellows and by 1916 mm. they had expanded their art collection all the way to a jaw-dropping eight paintings oh. but then the boom actually did happen and a few years after that the collection expanded to several hundred works that's more than eight yeah yeah, that's true. That's true. I had to dust off my old uh, TI-89. Old <laughs> Abacus had to come out of the drawer. <laughs> the expansion happened because during the 20s and 30s, donors began contributing their personal collections and then community support was coming in. They got so much new art coming in, they added a new wing to the museum to accommodate all of it. They need room for racks. <laughs> nice racks. Oh, good racks you got here. I like what you... What is this, nine by two? <laughs> Since the art section of the museum didn't have much funding to keep up with all the chaos, they were relied, again, heavily on volunteers and assistant curators, almost all of whom were women. And this is because art is for women, as we all know. Girls just want to get funding. (laughs) 
Boys don't curate. <laughs> it was because back in those days, most women didn't have full-time jobs and wanted to do things they were interested in, but wouldn't get hired by most places, just like with the library system. Yeah. They were allowed into the nonprofit world of art museuming. There was Helen B. Wood in Ooh. 1919, who pushed for more local artists to be put on display. There was Mary E. Marsh in 1922, who was actually made curator, which technically makes her the first female curator for the LACMA collection. Yay. But she left the job just three months in because she got married. Oh, I Sorry. hope to someone who was progressive too. Yeah, progressive, like progress yourself into my house and never leave. <laughs> there was Mildred McLuth, who was assistant curator until 1927, and then Louise Upton after her until 1940. Loving all these names. <laughs> very early 1900s. Very. A local woman named, oh, here's one for you, Ebria Feinblot. <laughs> she got hired. Love her. She got hired in 1947 and got a huge collection of prints and drawings going. Much later in the 60s, which we're jumping ahead a little bit, it was a group of women who started LACMA's docent program, which mm. is very well renowned and to this day is still mostly women. Cool. Camilla Chandler Frost, who is the daughter of Dorothy Chandler, oh really, joined the LACMA board in 1962. And in addition to leading docent tours, she gave a total of 2,480 works to the museum, valued at 20. $20 million dollars and then also sixty thousand dollars to start a program to bus kids in from the poorer parts of town so that they would have a chance to come see the museum that's like the, ma- the most amazing thing i've ever heard yeah but she wasn't a man so they cut the funding <laughs> yeah but she didn't drive the bus herself so you know they didn't give her credit instead of buses can it be like hot rods and they just pick up like really hot chicks and instead of the museum, they send them to a strip club where they now have to work forever. And the strip club is also on fire. <laughs> this lady uh, who we just mocked is still alive. If you want to send her a thank you card or ask her for some money. there was We're a- going to do both. <laughs> thank you. Money. Uh, money, money, money. <laughs> there was Anna Bing Arnold, who had been a donor for years, but officially joined the board in 1965. She was called LACMA's angel because whenever they needed something but couldn't find anybody who would buy it for them, she would. She died in 2003, but when she did, she left an endowment for off-site arts education. It was the largest endowment LACMA ever got, and they won't tell how much it was. But to give you a hint, they spend $1 million every year on arts programs for kindergarten through eighth grade public schools. So take a guess. Yeah. I'm going to say a million dollars. Trillion. But back in the 20s and 30s, step back a little bit, the collection may have been getting bigger, but it wasn't very good. So most of what they were displaying were loans or traveling exhibitions from better museums, which were mostly organized, again, by the women volunteers but I think women get enough credit in the world so let's go back to the men (laughs) especially in history I mean come on do we need another female president cut two men peeing in the Pacific Ocean because they think it's funny (laughs) because they can do it standing up some early major donors what my bottoms aren't getting wet some early major donors were J. Paul Getty and William Preston Harrison. But in the mid-40s, a huge contribution of art came from William Randolph Hearst Ooh. in the form of European, American, and Egyptian pieces. Then in the late 40s, they finally hired an art director with an actual art background in the form of James Henry Breasted Jr. What's the... What's the... James Henry Breasted Jr., Breasted. the man whose name is also technically a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually started to get a good collection going. With something of a legitimate reputation, now they started to get the crazy notion that maybe the art should get its own museum since oh, and, yeah the oh, oh. hubris since <laughs> it was bursting out of Exposition Park and by 1956 Richard Fargo Brown was pushing for just that the county eventually agreed and in 1961 they were granted seven acres of land on the La Brea Tar Pits Woo! 
the oldest spot in the city. <laughs> they were next to them, really. In November... I thought ni- that was an art installation. Is that not an art installation? Yeah. The woolly mammoth. It's a metaphor for... I get it. Yeah. For elephants. It's <laughs> a stand-in for the modern-day modern elephant. <laughs> an elephant that doesn't take no guff from nobody. <laughs> in November 1962, the groundbreaking began on the new $11.5 million museum, and in 1963, the art officially split from the Los Angeles Museum of History, Science, and Art, and they were now known by their new and current name, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Save the big reveal for the end. I like that. By 1965, the art had all been moved out of its parents' house into its (laughs) new home at 5905 Wilshire Boulevard. According to the newspaper, 500,000 pieces... That can't be right. 50,000 pieces were moved and they broke only one jar. Oh, wow. But it was worth $40 billion. (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't have given it to Laurel and Hardy to carry. (laughs) They just wanted to help out. They were so old, they wanted one last thing to do and they broke Pandora's jar. (laughs) And that's how we ended up with Abbott and Costello. (laughs) So on March 31st, 1965, LACMA was officially open and what sort of grand building was it housed in? Yes, please tell me. Why the blandest of the blandest, of course. (laughs) A lot of the the story of LACMA is the architecture of yeah. LACMA. When it first opened, <laughs> when it first opened, Arts and Arch- Arts and Architecture, <laughs> Archie Magazine, <laughs> Arts and Architecture Magazine said it suspended its policy of only reviewing buildings that were of exceptional merit to do a whole spread on how pitiful Ooh. and inexcusable this museum looked. The problem with a public museum is that the board has so many different people on it with so many different viewpoints and tastes on it, and nobody on the board could agree on who should design the museum. So in the end, they compromised on somebody that nobody wanted, a local boy named William Pereira. 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 <laughs> His company had also designed the LA Zoo and oh. that Googie 76 station in Beverly Hills that we talked about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for this, he wanted to go with something more grown up and serious to go along with the pompous sense that LA was finally mature enough to become a major cultural <sighs> center. What we got was considered ugly and utilitarian. It was made up of three buildings. The Amundsen Building, named for Howard Amundsen, who has been LACMA's biggest donor, having given around $100 million to them, which was the largest and would hold the permanent collection. Then there was the Bing Center, named for the husband of Anna Bing Arnold, Leo S. Bing, which had a 600-seat theater for programs and lectures. And the Lytton Gallery, named after Bart Lytton for special exhibitions. All three of these buildings are still there, but in 1968, they did rename the Lytton the Francis and Armand Hammer Building. You mean the spot, supposed? Alleged, alleged the alleged traitor to America. <laughs> Somehow, Arm and Hammer is not related to Arm and Hammer. I checked. <laughs> I I'm gonna fight you on this. I don't know how or and Army Hammer. I don't know how they're all not related, but <laughs> we live in a crazy world, and I'm gonna fix it. It just doesn't make sense that their names are so close and they're not the same person. No, it do, yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't add up. It was renamed because Lytton wanted that building to feature local artists, but the board wanted to be international, so he's out of the picture. The buildings, as you can go see them now, were not very decorative and didn't have have many windows, but all three of them were originally suspended over a large reflecting pool. It didn't take long, though, for the reflecting pools to be paved over because I guess they forgot that they were built on a sea of primordial goo, and the tar kept seeping into them, oh, so they had cool. to get rid of it. Still, Time Magazine called LACMA the Temple on the Tar Pits, and when it opened, it was the largest new museum to be built in the United States behind the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. For the collection itself, there wasn't much going on. The Alexander Calder sculpture Hello Girls was there for from day one. There's a sculpture for the first phrase I say when I wake up. Will you open up your window? Hello, girls. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> so it was there from day one, and after a narrow escape from the tar, it's still there today. Well, Other than that, though, almost half of their best stuff was on loan from Norton Simon's European mm-hmm. art collection. So now that LACMA was born, it was time to start the decades-long process of actually getting it on its feet. Yeah. Their first director, we'll take it through via the directors, the first director was Richard F. Brown. Mm-hmm. He resigned on January 31st, 1966, because of his constant tension with the board due to the fact that he wanted to have the museum be more daring. The board disagreed. They wanted, hey, milk for everybody. We're all grows up now. In March of 1966, in March of 1966, LACMA did do something daring by showing Edward Keinholz's backseat Dodge 38. Uh, I remember seeing it. It's weird that it was there for that long, but I remember seeing it a lot when I was a kid. I'm not familiar with it. It was a good representation of LA's car culture. It showed two teenagers making it in the backseat of a car. Like an actual car. An actual teenager. (laughs) The teenagers, they were made out of like chicken wire or something like that. Okay. So it wasn't too graphic, but it got the job done. (laughs) There was a huge outcry. I've been kissing chicken wire this whole time. (laughs) That's right. I'm so turned on by chicken coops. There was a huge outcry over its pornographic nature and the LA County Board of Supervisors tried to ban it and threatened to cut the funding of LACMA if they displayed it. they're going to cut the chicken wire. (laughs) Nothing can cut chicken wire (laughs) except for a hungry fox's teeth. The compromise was that they would display it, but the door on the car would be kept closed and guarded and only opened if someone asked to look inside and there were no kids around. That's even creepier. Yeah. Let me see the chicken wire kids. Let me see them. Let's <laughs> open the door. Give me the keys. There's no kids around. <laughs> On June 8th, 1966, Kenneth Donahue was named director and began to pump up LACMA's focus on art education. Oh, cool. In 1967, they even opened an art conservation center. Donahue's time as director was marked with some landmark exhibitions. In May 1971, they had Art and Technology, which was a breakthrough for LACMA's reputation, which paired scientists and engineers with major artists like Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein and James Turrell. On September 30th, have you ever heard of them? You know who Andy Warhol is? You ever heard of his factory? Yeah, he's had the hair. <laughs> he was that cute lady with the hair. <laughs> yeah, it was Alan's brother, right? <laughs> on September 30th, 1976, two centuries of black American art opened after their criticism for not paying attention to the black community. Mm-hmm. 88,000 people came to see this and was one of the museum's first examples of trying to better reflect the diversity of the city, which they've always kind of been trying to do. Yeah. LACMA said its personal record when the Treasures of King Tutankhamun exhibit opened February 15th, 1978. It went on for four months and 1.25 million people came to see it. That record has yet to be broken for LACMA. In the 70s, they even started their famous film screening program Mm -hmm. that was almost canceled in 2009, but a lot of people were vocally upset about it, including Martin Scorsese, even though he did not give any money (laughs) to back up his vocal upsetitude. It's the only place I'll play Gangs of New York. (laughs) I'll give you four million if you'll if you only play my movies. <laughs> Instead, they revamped it with a new partnership with Film Independent, still going strong. Oh, cool. Donahue's reign came to an end on February 8th, 1979, when he officially retired, and now, get ready for the 80s. Come take on, Eileen. Take on me, take on me, <laughs> Keep singing me that while I'm saying it. The 80s at LACMA was defined... Oh! Okay, go ahead. The 80s at LACMA was defined by the man who became director on January 
January 11th, 1980, and would stay director for the entire decade. So one guy steered us through that turbulent time full of cocaine. His name was Earl A. Powell III, That's or... A very cocaine name. Rusty, they'd call oh, him. Oh, Rusty who's Powell. the director? Rusty. Rusty. Yeah, Rusty's Go talk got to it. Rusty. <laughs> talk to Rusty. Yeah, Rusty writes the checks. <laughs> he came from the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and wanted to make the museum not as stuffy and old-fashioned as it was, the St. Yo Grandma Saisons, <laughs> although maybe some of them might have been because in 1982 they were raided for possessing illegally obtained works. This is my Grandma Saison. <laughs> but other than that, it's it's got her name in crayon on the back. <laughs> it's of her. Other than that, it was a pretty good decade for LACMA. On June 28th, 1984, they opened up a French Impressionist exhibit that pulled in 460000 making it LACMA's fourth largest show ever. In 84, they also started their yearly Collectors Committee fundraiser, which is it's kind of cool. It gathers a bunch of new potential artworks, and the rich citizens of the city come to pay to be a part of this gala, and then they all vote on their favorite one on display, and the one with the most votes gets added added into the permanent collection. Okay. So they still do this, That's which nice. we've never been invited. I mean, we'll wait for our invitation. I mean, mailbox every day is exhausting, but do they email it now or what? No. It's no. still mail? It's a form of mail that only rich people get. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> the biggest change during this decade was the addition of an entirely new building. On December 13th, 1986, the Robert O. Anderson building opened. It's the big thing you see if you're looking at the museum on Wilshire. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. It cost $35.3 million and became the new home of modern and contemporary art for the museum. You may know it as the Art of the Americas building as it was renamed in 2007. You may also know it as Bland. (laughs) In an attempt to spice things up on the LACMA campus, they yet again added their favorite spice to the mix, mayonnaise. (laughs) It looks very 80s, and it's very boring. What it did do was create a new main entrance to the museum. It made its home over the old entry bridge and the plaza that was the old main entrance. It also sealed the rest of the museum off from Wilshire, so it sort of isolated them, but it did create that nice plaza that they have in there. It was made by the Hardy Halsman Pfeiffer firm. It was described by a critic as like the foot in Monty Python. Like It's just (laughs) like everything's there, and then... We'll put this on top. The plan was to remodel the original three buildings with the same facade as this one. Yeah. And they did that to part of the hammer, but the rest never happened. Great. Okay. This, it's a work in progress. No. They gave up. <laughs> it's an officially admitted shame. <laughs> this is where the disjointedness that LACMA is now known for started, but that wasn't it for disjointed new additions in the <laughs> 80s. On July 28th, 1988, the B. Gerald Cantor Sculpture Garden opened. It's an outdoor sculpture garden with eight Rodans in it, and it's free to the public, but it didn't end there on September 25th, 1988, someone who's talking to you right now's birthday, the Pavilion for Japanese Art opened up. This was a brand new building to the east of the Amundsen designed by Bruce Goff, and surprisingly it was unanimously praised by everybody. It was the first building they made that were like, okay, that's a that one's oh, good. Oh, finally you did it. Yeah. They also finally added underground parking by the end of that decade. Finally. By the time Rusty Powell's time as director ended on April 28th, 1992, he had brought in 209 million in donations. He raised membership from 42,299 when he started to some 90,000 when he left. Annual attendance grew from 497,449 to 968,224. He got over 40,000 artworks promised or given to the museum's collection, and he started departments for photography, ancient and Islamic art, and Latin American art, all of which have grown into really impressive collections at this point. Something good happened in the 80s? This was the only 
only good thing to happen in the 80s. <laughs> Powell is credited with finally making LACMA a legitimate institution, but now we're in the 90s and things are starting to get weird. Red, red wine. <laughs> <laughs> Taking over for Rusty Powell on August 26, 1992 was Michael E. Shapiro. He had been chief curator of the St. Louis Art Museum and he was ready to push LACMA forward despite the economic troubles the country was facing with an emphasis on education and connecting to the community no matter how stressful it may be. August 20th, 1993, he resigned due to stress. Oh, Shapiro stressed. That was the headline. People were worried when he took the job that being a curator, because he had been a curator, he, they were worried that that didn't give him the expertise needed to perform the job of a director. Oh, Most of all, they thought he didn't have the fundraising experience that he needed. They were right. During his not even year-long stint, there was a lot of tension within the museum. Not a lot of donations were coming in. The budget got slashed. 23 staff members had to be laid off. There were shorter hours fewer programs. He couldn't connect to the community like he wanted with millions fewer dollars than he thought he was going to have. Some said it was Shapiro causing the tension within the museum and that he was really bad at making decisions. May or may not be true, but five curators resigned during the less than year that he was there. So... It's a common a good uh, sign. Yeah. This might have caused people to lose some of the confidence in LACMA that had been built up during the 80s, a theory that was backed up by the fact that the leadership of the museum was in question for the next two years. <laughs> like, they couldn't find anybody who, like, I don't want to get involved yeah. with that. LACMA was experiencing some serious financial setbacks, and they had to regroup, and that was a lot of trouble for somebody new to inherit in the job. The rebuilding started in January 1994. LACMA got a 99-year contract with the Board of Supervisors to extend their public funding. That same month, LACMA bought the May Company building next door for $18.3 million. Mm -hmm. That's the one that's on the Fairfax-Wilshire intersection. It's a historic cultural monument, streamlined, modern building Mm -hmm. from 1939, sometimes referred to as the perfume bottle. It's pretty cool. It sprays scent into the air. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's the last thing Notorious B.I.G. saw. (laughs) And what a way to go out. That looks like a perfume bottle. What? (laughs) They then spent another $3 million renovating that building, and eventually they reopened it on October 25th, 1998 as LACMA West for special programs and stuff like that, expanding the LACMA campus by 30%. It's a good start. They still needed a leader. Nobody wanted anything to do with this museum. In June 1995, though, they still had no taker for the job of director, but they needed somebody in charge, so they instead created a new co-head position in the museum of president and chief executive officer. This job went to Andrea L. Rich, who is the executive chancellor and of they UCLA. they her into it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no financial problems here, are there? No. 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 We're pretending we don't know what financial means. <laughs> you can't have a financial problem if there's no finances. <laughs> so, no. The top job was split in two, so as to prevent another Shapiro situation, yeah. as it's now known throughout the biz, <laughs> with a director who knows art but can't handle the business end of things, so Rich would now handle the business and fundraising end and continue the search for a director who would handle the art-centric side of the operations, a plan many people were skeptical of, fearing it would create tension between the two bosses like this sort of thing had done at other museums. Again, they weren't wrong. They finally found a new director on March 28, 1996 in Graham W.J. Beale, and he did stay for a while and helped get some major things in motion. In January 1999, they opened their Van Gogh show that drew in 821,000 people, making it LACMA's third biggest show ever. He brought in a donation of 75 
ancient Chinese pieces worth $3.5 million. Also in July 1999, Hancock Park behind the museum reopened after a decade of fundraising and renovations, making it an actually nice place to be, complete with the Dorothy Collins Brown Amphitheater for mm-hmm. performances. But on September 9th, 1999, he left to run the Detroit Institute of Arts, and they just figured that's enough of the two-headed system. <laughs> and Andrea Rich took over as director as well as being the president, and now there was just one boss to rule them. Oh, that's the way that it all should be, right? Yeah. yeah. And she consolidated power. She, <laughs> she killed the heads of all the art departments, <laughs> just to make a point. Just to see if she could, and she could. Oh, Andrea. <laughs> Seeing how Rich's background was in education and not art, people were still skeptical. This made LACMA the only major museum not being run by somebody who wasn't an art expert. This made a lot of people angry, but like her or not, she Y2K'd us into the new <laughs> millennium, and she decided things needed to change drastically. She felt that the LACMA campus was getting too disjointed, and an overhaul was needed to finally make it into one coherent structure. They held a design competition in 2001, and the winner of it was the Pritzker Prize winner, which is like the Pulitzer Prize for architecture. Uh-huh. He was the winner of the year 2000, the Dutchman Rem Koolhaas. <laughs> he wins again. His plan involved tearing down all three of the original buildings and also the Art of the Americas building and replacing it with one giant structure covered by this tent-like roof. The plan was approved, and all that was left to raise the money to make this, and then the recession hit. Oh. The big donors were less willing to give up the money needed for this project, whose cost rose from the original $200 million to $400 million, and plus all the money was needed up front and not in stages, yeah. which is oh, no. typical of a Dutchman. <laughs> he wanted it all up front, and then he rides a windmill home. It also became clear that the entire museum would have to be shut down for three years oh during this construction. God, yeah. So understandably, a tax increase for this plan was voted down as everybody was having money troubles at the time. But then one man stepped up, who from here on in will be a very big part of this episode, and pledged $50 million if other donors would step up and help cover the rest. This man was vice chairman of the LACMA board, Eli Brode. And nobody mm-hmm. else stepped up to fund this new building. So by December 2002, the Koolhaas overhaul was dead. Some people just didn't want to see the old buildings go. Yeah. And others felt silly giving so much money towards building a museum their name won't even be on when for the same amount of money they could have one named after them. Yeah, which is, that's what it's all about. Well, this must be where Brode then got the idea to take that $50 million he was going to give as part of this new mega building and instead give it to LACMA with the stipulation of using it to build a new regular building on the LACMA campus. Right. He gave the money wanting this new building to be dedicated to contemporary art and mm-hmm. he even got the very famous architect Renzo Piano to design it. My favorite uh, Power Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> and instrument. <laughs> this plan actually did move forward and in 2003 Brode even sweetened the deal by promising that when the building was done he would donate all of his post-war and contemporary art to this new LACMA building which would be called the Brode Contemporary Art Museum. This would be a museum within the museum. So it would be on the western edge of the campus and would reorient the entire museum now making the main entrance the new BP Grand Entrance and giving symmetry to the complex with LACMA West and the BCAM as they call it on the west, the BP Grand Entrance in the middle and the older buildings on the east. So it's sort of like we could duct tape this all together (laughs) and it'll work. This became part of phase one of what they were calling the transformation to completely redo the LACMA campus. Head away for a full moon. (laughs) Phase one included the BCAM, the Mm. BP Grand Entrance and BB-8. A redoing of the atrium in the Amundsen and a new underground parking lot, which opened in 2006. It was even more underground. 
underground. <laughs> you thought that other one was underground? That was above ground. <laughs> During the construction of this new underground parking lot, they unearthed fossils of bison, camels, horses, saber-toothed cats, a baby mastodon, and an entire mammoth. Oh my golly. Yeah. And they were all double parked. <laughs> a lot was happening, but money was still really tight. But they found a bison. Just sell the bison. Sell the bison. Those things go for thousands. <laughs> in one controversial move in fall 2005, they sold off 42 works of art valued at about $13 million to prepare for the BCAM expansion. These included Picasso's, Matisse's, Modigliani's. They were heavily criticized for this, but they defended it by saying that museums do this sort of thing all the time. They did it in 1982 to prepare for the construction of the Art of America's building. They sold hundreds of works then, but it only brought in $1.8 million. They estimate that nowadays the museum museum regularly sells some 200 items a year. Oof. They say they do it to get rid of redundant and unrepresentative items yeah. and to use that money to fill in the gaps in the collection, but others see it as unethical and superficial. Like, we just want the singles. We don't want any of the albums. Nah. Give me my Sharona, but I don't want to hear the rest. Uh, the next a good band. <laughs> give him a chance. No, I... No. No, no. Despite all this, Andrea Rich managed to raise membership to 118,000. She brought a King Tut exhibit back to LACMA in 2005 which I went to and I think I saw Leonardo DiCaprio in the gift shop really yeah did he talk about gangs in New York yeah he said have you gone to the Bing theater (laughs) (laughs) this King Tut show wasn't as big as the first one it wasn't as big as the first one no it never is it didn't (laughs) even have Steve Martin singing at the end it was only the second biggest LACMA show of all time bringing in 937,613 people over 137 days they even started to build up a large Mexican art collection under Andrea Rich's direction, she solved most of LACMA's financial problems and mm-hmm. set them on the path that they're now on towards maybe great things. Then all of a sudden on November 7, 2005, with so much going on... The second recession hit. The, the self-inflicted LACMA <laughs> recession. The localized Wilshire and Fairfax recession hit. She resigned November oh 7, 2005. She said she resigned because of power struggles with the board, but she probably misspoke and meant to say the Broad. <laughs> People had criticized her for giving Broad too much power and how the museum was being run. Yeah. But he was giving them so much money and art and stuff. So what's the big deal? Well, let's see now. Yeah, break it down for let's me. Let's take the mask off your precious hero. With Rich gone, they needed a new director, but they got turned down by people from all over the world. Yeah, but still? F- still. There, there were reputations. Yeah. But finally, on February 2nd, 2006, after 12 years of running the Dia Art Foundation, Michael Govan was appointed as the seventh director to run LACMA. He's still there right now. Govan is a contemporary art kind of guy so he brought a lot of focus on that into the museum. He also wanted more outdoor art that people could interact with like Tulips by Jeff Koons and Fire Truck by Charles Ray which both had to be removed because they were interacted with too much and that and the elements being outside oh, which yeah, yes. is where elements thrive it st- was starting to ruin them. They also had the other element of tar. Yeah, the hidden element. Those uh, tar tidal waves that every, <laughs> every few years happen. The first major outdoor art piece he brought in was Urban Light by Chris Burden that opened up February 7th, 2008. It's a nod again to LA's car culture. It's the the street lamps thing. It's Oh, okay. Yeah, it's made up of 202 actual street lamps from the 20s and 30s from different neighborhoods around LA mm-hmm. that the artist he started collecting in 2000 with a couple that he found at the Rose Bowl flea market. Oh, cool. The same artist also had a performance piece in the 70s where he got shot in the arm for art. Like really shot in the arm. Shot in the arm with a gun. With a bullet. Was it like part of an alibi like to get out of a, like a the feds off his case or something? He just saw Star Wars and he was like, <laughs> I want to lose an arm. 
<laughs> he wanted to make this thing that was the centerpiece of that romantic comedy with Ashton Kutcher <laughs> and the lady from that 70s show. He wanted it because there was no grand staircase or any sort of defining building of yeah. LACMA, like a museum like the Guggenheim or something like yeah, that yeah. has. So he was hoping this would become the symbol of LACMA, and it kind of did. Not even a couple weeks after that, on February 16th, the B-Cam officially opened. Yay. But the celebration was a little bit dampened by a couple events that had happened the month before. First, dozens of federal agents swooped in on four museums in Southern California, LACMA included, for having bought illegally obtained Native American and Asian art. This was the culmination of a five-year undercover sting operation, (sighs) which brought to light that not just outside of this and the other event, like we talked about, happened a few decades earlier, LACMA had actively pursued pieces they knew to have been looted in the past. Like movies, like art heist movies. Yeah, only they're the bad guys. But this got mostly swept under the rug. The real damper on the party was that that same month, just a month before the museum named after him was set to be open, Eli Brode decided to go back on his promise and rescinded his offer to donate all of his contemporary art to LACMA. Great. Nice guy. He instead elected to loan it out to several museums rather than just give it all to just one. His reasoning was that LACMA wouldn't commit to permanently displaying his works and rather than have them stay in storage, he'd rather other museums got the chance to also display them. Mm-hmm. Others saw this as a last-minute lack of confidence in the museum and some sort of silly ploy to have a museum all of his own where yeah. he would have full control, which he denied and then later did. Supporters of LACMA worried that it would send a message to all future potential donors that if somebody like Brode wouldn't give his art to them, why should anybody else, especially not giving it to be housed in a building named after him? <laughs> Either way, it seriously undermined what LACMA was trying to do in becoming a major cultural institution. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the first time in history, though, that donors had pulled away from LACMA. In the late 30s, Walter and Louise Arensberg were going to give them a ton of Latin American art, but the museum just didn't seem interested, so they instead gave it to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Like we said, and Greg will probably say again, Norton Simon pulled out all of his work after a power struggle with the other trustees in 1975. Mm -hmm. Also in the 70s, Catherine White offered to give a huge collection of African art, but LACMA wasn't interested yet again. I don't want art that isn't white. (laughs) So she gave that to the Seattle Art Museum. And meanwhile, like all these these museums are like they went on like, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a world class museum. Yeah. Armin Hammer was going to give another large collection, but LACMA didn't want to give in to his demands either. Oh, boy. Which, to be fair. What's the phrase about beggars? They can't be something. <laughs> they can't be giving in to weak donors. That's what it is. That's the beautiful phrase everyone remembers. (laughs) But to be fair about the Arm and Hammer thing, one of his demands was that all the stuff he had donated in the past had to be given back to him and he wanted all the names of the other donors taken off of the rooms that his art would be displayed in. Oh, that's insane. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We could cut him loose. Yeah. yeah. So he branched off and he formed his Hammer Museum in Westwood in 1989. He'll get his own episode. Walter Annenberg was also going to give all of his stuff to LACMA, but ended up going with the Met in New York instead. World-class museum. Museums grow with donations, but the drama that comes with it is a donation you cannot deny. <laughs> Regardless, the B-Cam opened, and boy, was it underwhelming yet again. It was another bland building added to the bland LACMA campus yeah. made by an architect known for being incredibly daring. Oh. In addition to the addition, Broad had said he would pay for every penny of this new addition, but LACMA maintains that it cost $55.5 million 
million and he only gave 50 million nah. so they're 5.5 million in the hole Broad interfered yet again when in 2008 as well there were talks to merge LACMA with the Ailing Museum of Contemporary Art but Broad saved them with a donation and that deal was off but the transformation kept moving forward forward <laughs> onward and that included opening up yet another contemporary art building next to the BCAM mm-hmm. this was put in motion just a month after the BCAM opened it was completed October 2nd 2010 as the 45 million dollar Linda and Stuart Resnick Exhibition Pavilion it's the biggest open plan museum in the world and was also designed by Renzo Piano and it was yet another plain addition <laughs> to the LACMA they're just like warehouses <laughs> what I, is I don't know yeah maybe there's the fumes from the tar like <laughs> inhibit you now uh, this is great yeah four walls and no roof it's exactly what we wanted. So this building was part of phase two of the transformation, which also included another outdoor piece, Levitated Mass, oh. which is the giant boulder by yeah, Michael yeah, yeah. Heiser, which opened June 24th, 2012, after the 340-ton rock was transported for 11 nights to LACMA on a 200-wheeled truck traveling at seven miles per hour from a quarry in Riverside. Wow. The 10 million- That was the, the most boring parade I ever went to. I was blowing my noisemakers. The the rock didn't even wave at me. Dwayne Johnson did. The $10 million piece and demonstration of moving it here was meant to show a modern version of like societies moving huge pieces of earth for their art and for their construction. Uh, But now that it's just there, it's just there. Also (laughs) moving it. (laughs) Move it again, but just a little bit. Also as part of phase two was supposed to be a giant hanging train by Jeff Koons that was... uh, A drain? Train. Citizen train, <laughs> a giant train that was supposed to like dangle. Oh, really? Yeah, like the the Jurassic Park ride. Oh, right, 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 yeah. that's funny. Uh, hey, that's funny. But that never panned out. Train never came to the station. No, it got <laughs> held up in Riverside. <laughs> Govan has been credited with doing for LACMA what Dudamel did for the Philharmonic mm. and pushing it to the next level and getting new and exciting things going. In December 2007, he got the museum a gift from Janice and Henry Lazarov to really fill out the museum's modernist collection with 130 pieces by people like Picasso, Klee, Kandinsky. That same year, they got a huge loan of Latin American pre-Columbian art. Mm-hmm. In 2008, they got a large collection collection of Oceania art and 3,500 photographs. In January 2009, they got a huge acquisition of 18th and 19th century European clothing with around 250 outfits and 300 accessories, giving LACMA one of the best collections of this sort of thing in the world and maybe the probably the best in the country. That's especially good because now costume designers from the studios nearby have everything they need to consult for oh, any movie right, taking right. place between the year 1700 and 1915. Just go see. Yeah. We have all the clothes that was made from that. <laughs> Time. They teamed up with the Getty to acquire over $30 million worth of the works of the photographer Robert Maplethorpe. Mm-hmm. It's currently seen as old-fashioned to rely heavily on European art yeah. in a museum. So they've begun to collect more art from Africa and Asia and adding to their already large Latin American collection. They now have one of the best collection of Islamic art in the world. They want to better reflect the population of the city. So in 2009, they had a show focusing entirely on current Korean artists. Mm-hmm. The museum says that they now have the most comprehensive holding of traditional Korean art outside of Korea. And we're not giving it up. In 2010, they wanted to make the campus more attractive. So Robert Irwin, the same guy who did the gardens at the Getty, which are very attractive. He started his primal palm garden of putting these huge palm trees that you see around the the two Renzo Piano buildings. That same year, they reached out of their boundaries and helped in preserving the Watts Towers. Mm -hmm. They opened up better restaurants within the museum with Ray's and 
and the Stark Bar and the Coffee Plus Milk Cafe. Mm-hmm. They brought back the old Arts and Technology Lab and are pairing artists with companies like Google and NVIDIA and SpaceX. They've been making better use of the local film community by getting people like Barbara Streisand and Ryan Seacrest and Brian Grazer onto the board of trustees. Ryan uh, Seacrest is on the board? Yeah. Good for him. Ryan Seacrest is everywhere. <laughs> Seacrest uh, he, in. He hosts the board. They put on the Tim Burton exhibition in 2011, yeah. the Stanley Kubrick one in 2012, went to it twice, stole so many things. <laughs> Two little outfits for us to wear from The Shining. <laughs> and one axe to get our business done. <laughs> in October 2011, they even leased out the May Company building to the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences to yeah. build a new $300 million museum to film, which will open in 2018. Neat. Can't wait. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah. Uh, I went to a pre-exhibition they had in there of film costumes. Oh, really? What was yeah. the winning piece? What did you walk away thinking I should Darth own Vader's that? suit. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I walked away in it. <laughs> it is big. No one's stopping Darth Vader from walking out of the museum. <laughs> Surprisingly, I know how to use the Force. And I choked so many docents. <laughs> I didn't really get the distance thing down, so I just held my hand to their neck. But, you know, it works. It's the Force. I use the Force of, you know, my biceps. <laughs> in 2014, the new Subway to the Sea purple line broke ground on the plot of land that LACMA had bought in 2008 next to the Peterson Museum, uh-huh. which is expected to be completed in 2019 and will make getting to LACMA via public transportation actually possible. That would be great. Under Govan, LACMA has expanded to cover seven buildings across 20 acres of land, but there is still one problem that has been there from the start. The buildings are just too disjointed. Yeah. It does, like, it doesn't, it's not cohesive at all. Honestly, the two Renzo Piano buildings, I've been to them once and that was like a year ago because I thought it was a separate, (laughs) like, I didn't know it was part of LACMA. Like, I didn't know. Is this a subway? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know I was allowed in there. It really, like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So this is where phase three of the transformation comes in. The Zumther plan. Oh. Episode three. <laughs> the older buildings are run down and leaky and it would cost to bring them up to code. I thought this was part of their thing. Like it was thing. part of the charm. Yeah. To bring all these up to code, it would cost over $350 million. Oh As an alternative, Govan enlisted the 2009 Pritzker Award winning Swiss architect. Don't go with the uh, the Dutch anymore. Peter Zumther to do a complete redesign of the LACMA campus. So in his new design, the three original buildings and the Art of America buildings will be demolished. All that will remain is the Japanese pavilion and the two Renzo piano buildings. And in the place of the old buildings will be one giant dark blob-like megastructure. Cool. Yeah. This will be Zumther's first work in the United States and is meant to emphasize more of a connection with the building to the city and satisfying the city's need for more public spaces. It was also designed in that blob-like way in homage to the tar that has oh, been neat. plaguing the museum forever. <laughs> it will be raised 30 feet in the air on giant glass cylinders. It will have no main entrance, but rather several different entrances. The roof will be covered in solar panels that will power the entire building and will save about $5 million a year in operating costs. Mm. The layout will also allow for more of the collection to be on display than ever before. Right. In June 2014, the design had to be redone out of respect for the Page Museum, who said that the new design would be blocking light and rainfall from the tar pit. <laughs> and disrupting the ecosystem. So the current design is now less blob-like and more angular, which I'm not as big of a fan of. Yeah, I wanted the blob. But the blob, it creeps and leaps and flies, and <laughs> that's actually Beware. the tar. Beware. Beware of the tar. <laughs> Line. <laughs> <laughs> we lost the blob, but... <laughs> 
But now it's going to cross over Wilshire. Like it's going to be suspended over Wilshire into a parking lot that LACMA owned at the corner of Wilshire and Spalding. And it, that actually sounds kind of cool. Like yeah. you're going to walk over Wilshire to see yeah. your precious Monet's. I like that idea a lot. Monet, 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 Monet. <laughs> the coloring of it also got changed from all black to some lighter elements. And, ah. and I'm sure the design is going to change even more by the time they're expected to break ground in 2018. Yeah. It might be fully black again like you've always wanted. I want another structure that looks like the tar has taken over. <laughs> oh no, the tar one. <laughs> oh, the tar blob woke up. They dug too deep. <laughs> they should make it shaped like a giant mastodon. <laughs> is this what you wanted, Page Museum? <laughs> Fine. Fine. The new building is expected to be done in 2023 and in the meantime the collection will be displayed in the BCAM and the Resnick buildings. This is all going to cost around $650 million and something because of the obstacles and the ambitions involved. It might mimic what the Getty went through to be created and will end up costing closer to a billion dollars. It's funny reading all this art collecting that you like three million is not that much like a lot of money. Yeah, and yeah. as it goes on, it's like, well, she gave $50,000. Oh, wow, he gave $3 million. Oh, wow, he gave $100 million. Yeah. Oh, he's giving a billion dollars. Yeah, right. it means nothing. Yeah. The thing with this, though, Govan was smart and came to the donors with the design first rather than asking oh, yeah. them for money first because now they don't get an input and there's yeah. not some sort of weird compromise of the building being built again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day after the plans were approved, the former agent of Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor, who was also the owner of Lowe's Theater, and the ex-CEO oh. of Univision, A. Gerald Perenchio. He promised to donate 47 paintings by people like Monet, Picasso, and Degas worth mm-hmm. half a billion dollars <laughs> after he dies if this new building is actually completed. Wow. So this would be the biggest gift that LACMA has ever gotten. With all of the failed plans for redesign in the 21st century, people were skeptical, but it looks like this new building is actually going to happen. And if it is, it's expected to be the biggest piece of architecture for the city since the Disney Concert Hall. LA was the only city in the world with the chance to completely redo one of its main museums and we're actually doing it, which is kind of exciting. And not just that, by going with Zumther, we are making a statement by going with something new and exciting and kind of untested rather than just another Renzo piano (laughs) design that so many cities have gone with and is kind of played out by this point. It's exciting that something that this big is going to happen during our lifetime, but at the same time, there's a concern that this is yet another example of LA obliterating its past and demolishing all of its old buildings which we have a history of yeah. doing for just new ones rather than adhering to the idea that a city is shaped by its accumulated memory. So the question is, will future generations resent us for demolishing buildings that may look boring and ugly to us, but will be beautiful to them, like how Art Deco and Googie buildings yeah. now for the generation before us. So that's where LACMA is. They celebrated their 50th birthday last year. It happy opened birthday. Uh, happy birthday last year. <laughs> it opened up in a time when the city didn't have a Getty Museum or a Hammer or a Norton Simon or a mocha and it set out to match the Met in New York Mm -hmm. even though they had a hundred year head start on them. (laughs) They're making pretty good progress. They're on Snapchat. Woo! And ooh it's sexy. Yeah. With over 120,000 items it is the largest art museum west of the Mississippi and as disjointed and mishmashed as it's been (laughs) that's just how LA is baby. (laughs) It's just a lot of weird things that are smashed together and like "Eh, this is us. (laughs) It's collaborative. It's rich men going crazy and if you don't like that you can see LACMA being destroyed in the movies Volcano and Miracle Mile and in Ed Rusha's painting Los Angeles County Museum on fire. Oh, that's right. That's the thing he did. Yeah. Everything's on fire. <laughs> this girl is on fire. I'm going to go into two art collectors right now and kind of their history with their own works. Yeah, the people that branched off of, of uh, LACMA. Yeah. For me, like, it was more interesting, although yours, yours is very interesting. I, I, I was concentrating more a little bit on the... Well, you should, you 
didn't say it after every sentence how interesting it is. I kept nodding. You heard me say, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 it's taking 14 hours to scan my computer and being like, no, there's nothing here. Move along. <laughs> Norton Simon's weird. All right, next next topic. <laughs> like, I've read the word visionary. Yeah, all right. I have trouble racking my brain around art collectors who are good at business. Like, that just seems, I don't know. They seem to be businessmen who, who are like, well, people like art, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess it is it, yeah. Well, Something about commerce and art and, like, mixing them together doesn't seem good. Yeah. But, like, some the people... Match made in heaven. There are some people, though, that appreciate art, know its value, and are good at business. I guess maybe I'm just so, like, low in, the, in society. You can appreciate either. I, yeah, I have no idea of... All you have respect for is... The bloody fist <laughs> <laughs> which is my favorite band yeah but but norton simon is a renaissance man he's like a self-made well, well let's get started norton winfred simon was born in february of 1907 in portland oregon Ugh. portland breeds weird people from my understanding of <laughs> film and tv references his father meyer simon owned a department store there in portland which some think may have gotten probably where he got, weird probably super weird they Hippie probably sold weirder. like hair or something <laughs> that's probably where he got his itch for entrepreneurship the family which involved i believe it's norton simon and two sisters then moves to san francisco and by all accounts norman is a very savvy businessman he graduates from high school when he's 16. He gives UC Berkeley a quick try before dropping out. And by 18, has moved to Los Angeles and started a sheet metal distributing company. This every, is, everybody, this every is everybody's kid's start. dream. This is in 1925. It's cool back then. Cool, yeah. It was like uh, Silicon Valley. Around the same time, 1922. Sheet metal planes. <laughs> it's like what beer crafting is now. It's like starting a brewery. Back then, it was sheet metal. It was just a different time. <laughs> Around the same time, 1922, the privately endowed nonprofit institute known as the Pasadena Art Institute is established. And two years later, is incorporated. Incorporated. It was founded by local citizens in hopes of encouraging Los Angeles residents into a study of fine arts. They managed to claim the Reed Mansion, which is a 22-room Victorian house on nine and a half acres of land situated at the corner of Orange Grove and Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena, a spot known as Carmelita Park. Carmelita. Any relation to the Carmelita Provision Company? I didn't look into that, but let's stop the episode and find out. <laughs> Here we go. This is where Chorizo was born. The chorizo pits. <laughs> oh no, they're seeping in. <laughs> Get some scrambled eggs. Get the three is quick. It's spilling everywhere. Everyone Invite your extended family. <laughs> Who's going to eat all this chorizo? <laughs> Why? Yo. <laughs> So in 1929, as we always have to mention, the Great Depression hits Los Angeles. It's not uh, as cool as the recession, though. No, it's not. Mm. This ain't your daddy's depression, but it might be, and it leads to But it to might it. be because it's genetic. <laughs> <laughs> the Depression hits, but Norton Simon has no plans on being depressed by the Depression. It's 1931, and while most Americans were eating their own cats to survive... <laughs> Norton Simon was eating his neighbor's cats to survive. <laughs> you don't... Where's Cinnamon, they say. <laughs> Why, Cinnamon did not live up to her name, I'd say. You don't eat from your own stock. That's how you make it. <laughs> don't get full on your own litter. Just have good neighbors. State Farm. Norton Simon invested $7,000 in a bankrupt juice bottling company running out of Fullerton. What? <laughs> exactly. What? Who? What? It's the depression. I have $7,000. Who needs money? That Even in the best of times, that doesn't <laughs> sound like a good investment. Watch what he does. All right. This was the first of his many acquisitions. He takes this bottling company and he turns it into a company that cans tomato products. And during this, he kept prices low and greatly expanded the operations of the newly named Valvita Food Products. Hmm. Initially, the company had annual sales about $45,000 a year. But by the end of the decade, he built a business into a $9 million corporation. Around 1932, he gets... Why, are, why is that... Why do people need that many canned tomatoes? Sending them off to war. I have no idea. <laughs> so many Italians were coming <laughs> in the country at that time. 
That's all they wanted. Uh, Come to America. They, we have canned tomatoes. <laughs> now with more canned tomatoes. Every other country wanted to give them squash. We got you looking for. So around 1932, he gets married to a woman named Lucille, and about six years later, they have a son together, Lucille. Robert. Lucille? <laughs> I don't remember the rest of that song. That's you, all it is, really. Yeah, what else do you need? He quickly merged these two people into Lubert, because that's all he knows how to do. <laughs> in the early 40s, he sold the company to Hunt Brothers Packing Co. for $3 million, and then two companies, Hunt Foods and Valveda, merged. But he wasn't done there. He then bought stock in Hunt, and in 1943, Norton gained control of the Hunt Brothers, and the next year became the chairman of what was now the industrious Hunt Foods Incorporated. <laughs> but why stop at canning and bottling? Over the next decade, Simon and Hunt Foods expanded and diversified, and became a can-making plant and a glass plant. And the company went on to national distribution, which is like a money rain dance once you go <laughs> national. Cut back to Pasadena Art Institute. In 1942, April of that year, the PIA joined with the newly created Pasadena Museum of Art and set up shop on their new headquarters at the Grace Nicholson Studios on Los Robles Avenue. It's now where the Pacific Asian Museum is at. A year later, the museum, along with, again, the aid of local citizens, managed to pay off the mortgage there. At this point, Grace Nicholson gave the studio to the city of Pasadena as a gift, and in return, the city leased the building back to the museum for no cost, which lasted them for 25 years. The transaction between the museum and the city also meant the new museum building could be built at the Calmerlita property on Orange Grove in Colorado, which meant they had two buildings now, one where they can educate people about art and the other place where they can actually display art. Back to Simon, though. Through a series of strategies, mergers, and acquisitions, Norton Simon created every megalomaniac's dream, <laughs> an industry named after himself. <laughs> Norton Simon Incorporated. Multi- still, no antivirus? No, nah, not yet. How could it? Look, look, but look. again, how could Arm and Hammer not be related to Arm and Hammer? Exactly. <laughs> I feel like these two people are made up. Yeah. They're like personifications of a company. <laughs> One corporation gave birth to a little boy. <laughs> when two corporations love each other very much, because corporations are people, according to Congress. <laughs> so Norton Simon Incorporated is a multi-industry, multinational corporation that included Hunt Weston Foods, if you're familiar with the tomato yeah. sauce. Oh, of course. McCall's Publishing. Well, I call it ketchup, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What do you call it? What am I catching up to? Use tomato juice on your french fries? Or? <laughs> yeah, put V8 all over it. It's also McCall's Publishing, Saturday Review of Literature, Canada Dry Corporations, Ginger Ale. Well, I like this. Max I Fa- like these things. <laughs> these are things that I enjoy on a daily basis. Ketchup and ginger ale. It also includes Max Factor Cosmetics, which you also like. It's the only one I wear. And Avis Car Rental. Oh, the only one I drive. <laughs> and also the one that this 25-episode-old podcast drives. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we, we, our sponsor is now Norton Simon. Yeah. Norton Simon, please back us up on this. Please. We'll let you put any virus you want on our computers. <laughs> Even the dirty ones. His conglomerate of corporations. You know <laughs> We're not going to name it, but here's uh, the list of names. <laughs> His conglomerate of corporations had a long list of products ranging from Popular Mechanics Magazine to tomato sauce. But why stop there? If you're like Norton Simon, you are perpetually restless and dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. Playing the business games was very rewarding, but by 1969, he had seemed to achieve all he sought after. His conglomerate corporation almost ensured that he'd be wealthy until he died, which I looked into. His stocks were worth more than $50 million by this point. And a new interest. Jump change. Toss it around. Toss it. Who are you? Eli Bro- Broad. Sorry. I'm sorry to the bro Broad. family. Broad. Broad. Like a bunch of bros did something bad to you and you're telling the cops like, I've been broad. I've got broad. <laughs> hey, let's not make fun of me. He's the most powerful man. Yeah, no, he he currently, he just walked in right now. Uh, Mr. Mr. Broad. broad. Mr. Broad. Mr. Broad, you've got a lovely daughter. <laughs> She's quite the broad. Um, <laughs> so at this point in his life, a new interest slowly started to take prominence in his life and that's art collecting. Uh, yeah, it's a late in the life thing it for is. broad also. Yeah. Is it? 
Yeah. That's weird. Well, I mean, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> like, they have nothing else to do, so. <laughs> What's that thing? Yeah, yeah, bring it over here. It started 15 years earlier in 1954 after his home was built. And I can't really find out where that was, but he purchased works of art to decorate his new home with. Mm-hmm. It started with a Gauguin, a Bonnard, and a Pissarro, and he said he was hooked after that. And just like Norton Simon, when something seems interesting, he throws himself headfirst into it. He began acquiring works from Cezanne, Renoir, Degas, who he seemed to focus more of his attention on. Was He has a big Degas collection. Around this time, to go back to the PIA, Pasadena Art Institute received a gift of 500 artworks from the estate of the German painter and collector Galka Shire. Galka Shire. Galka Shire. <laughs> who were represented artists like Kandinsky, Klee, Julensky, Feininger, and many others. And along with the work came personal correspondence with them as well, which is pretty cool. The gift beefed up the Pasadena Art Institute's stature and made it one of the richest collections in the world in regards to modern art. A year later, and with a new collection, they changed their name to the Pasadena Art Museum to refocus the building to the acquisition and exhibition of modern art. And with forward momentum, the Pasadena Art Institute continued to develop. They added a 85,000 square foot structure to the original building on the Carmelita Park and began acquiring landmark artworks and receiving donations by artists like Ellsworth Kelly, Roy Lichtenstein, Ed Rusha, and Andy Warhol. Who? Andy Warhol. Uh, blonde, short hair, glasses, turtleneck. Oh, that cute woman from the yeah, 60s? The, the cute woman from the 60s from the factories. Yeah. You know the factories. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah. We were all there. Parting. Uh, it's just me, Andy Warhol, Yoko Ono. A lot of colors. So many <laughs> in November of 1969, a new Pasadena Art Museum opened to the public, but almost immediately, they were in debt. <laughs> also around this time, 1964, Norton was beginning to lean more into philanthropy and politics. He became a trustee of the Los Angeles County Museum of History, Science, and Art, which he brought up, where he got close to and mentored by Robert Brown, who was one of the yeah. black guys who quit. Was, I think he was the first one. Yeah. Simon was a regent of the University of California. He served on the board of Carnegie Commission on the Future of Higher Education. He served on the board of Reed College, as well as the Los Angeles Music Center, the California School of Professional Psychology, and the Institute for Advanced Study. And in addition to all of this, he was also on the board of LACMA, which you've brought up already. Mm-hmm. And in 1970, he ran a unsuccessful bid for the Republic Senate nomination, where he frequently opposed Governor Ronald Reagan, the actor, uh, who had harsh stances on administrators <laughs> and students. Secretary of State. <laughs> he didn't win that. And so... You mean Norton Simon wasn't president? You don't remember that? We talked about this before. He's not on the dollar bill. That's Jackson. That's Andrew Jackson. <laughs> Soon to be Harry Tubman. Harriet Tubman's on all the money now. We can't distinguish what's what because she's on everything. <laughs> Slip me a Tubman. <laughs> and so by 1964, Simon has these two really strong foundations, the Norman Simon Foundation and the Norton Simon Art Foundation, actively building and displaying his art collection. The first big purchase that the Norton Simon Foundation got was the remaining pieces of the Devon Brothers in New York, their collection, which included old master paintings, Italian marbles, Flemish tapestries. The pieces of his collection were being displayed at the newly built LACMA building. But as his art hunger grew past their capacity, he started lending his collection to other galleries all over the world. And all this art stuff was getting really consuming but 69 70 for him were really tumultuous years so i can kind of see what he's doing aside from losing the race for the u.s senate which was a big deal for him because he doesn't know loss very well his son robert committed suicide around this time and his marriage of 37 years to lucille was ending oh lucille i wish i knew the rest of that song because i could jump (laughs) in with you i could see him collecting art full-time to be more than a hobby and more than work it was like a well-needed distraction that was formulated to like be a replacement panic and something Mm -hmm. like the panic and celebrate over you know he puts himself full into this so he's like yeah nothing else is happening yeah it's just me and my day god <laughs> so it's 1969 at the age of 62 norton simon resigned as the director of the norton simon incorporated to concentrate his time fully on collecting art now after stepping down simon reduced his investment in his conglomerate to one million dollars worth of stock but he set it up so he can continue to receive a retirement income of one hundred thirteen thousand dollars in a year in addition to sixty thousand dollars a year as a consultant so he's fine yeah. don't worry about yeah. simon he'll be all right a year later norton norton 
Ah, oh, Norton. Norton went on a blind date with an actress named Jennifer Jones who had roles in A Duel in the Sun, Beat the Devil, and The Man in Gray Flannel Suit. The two were married by 1971, and while on their honeymoon in India, he became entranced by Indian art, more specifically South Asian art, and began collecting that. Before this, most of his works were largely focused on European art. Also, around this time, he was distancing himself from the LACMA board since Robert Brown had resigned some years earlier. Simon was not pleased with other board members and found himself constantly at odds with them over things like museum architecture, which he brought up already, and competition among donors. Simon eventually resigned, like you said, in 1971 with the intent of establishing his own museum now. And who is he to do that? A rich man who's a self-made man? <gasps> who is he? A capable man who can do it? <laughs> so it is now March of 1973 and he wants to build his own museum. And at the same time, Pasadena Art Museum is struggling to pay their bills. This is in March of 1973. It is all going down. The Pasadena Art Museum goes through another name change, this time to the Pasadena Museum of Modern Art to reflect more closely its intent on education and exposition. But a name change wasn't going to solve the ever-mounting problem of debt that the museum had accrued. After years of struggling with financial problems, the trustees of the PMMA reached out to Norman Simon, and if there was something Simon knew all too well, it, it was, was MMA. mergers. <laughs> <laughs> it was what? What did you say? Mergers, acquisitions, mm-hmm. bring it all together. MMA. MMA. The merger of my knee into your teeth. And now I own your teeth and my knee still. So the deal between the two would be that Simon would pay off the museum's $850,000 trouble with their debt and refurbish the $6 million structure. In return, he would have five-year rights to hang his collection of old masters, 19th century impressionists, and early 20th century paintings, and display his European and Southeast Asian sculpture in the building. Simon would get 75% of their physical space to display his collection, while the PMMA would get the remainder for their contemporary art. Simon says. To look over the new museum would be a 10-member board of trustees consisting of four members from Simon's group, three from the Pasadena Museum group, and three public members nominated by Simon. You could already see it's sorry. Yeah. It started to unlean. I mean, this, starting this to lean. fair. Yeah, this is totally what he wanted. Yeah. We're going to have four of my people, three of your people, and three clones of me. <laughs> handsome guys, aren't they? <laughs> They're a handsome little bunch. <laughs> so in June of 1974, the museum closed its store for renovations, and renovate it did. Kylo renovate. <laughs> That's a joke that no one's going to get. So around this time, the Pasadena Museum of Modern Art merged with the Norton Simons astounding private collection of art and reopened in March of 1975. They would temporarily change the name back to the Pasadena Art Museum, but that was eventually, of course, changed to the Norton Simon Museum of Art at Pasadena. Oh, it has a nice ring to it. It's got my name on it. Many art enthusiasts were not happy about losing another home that could house contemporary art over another place where already established classics were going to be seen. But even then, many agree that Norton Simon had one of the best private collections of art in the world. And Simon, shrewd business that he was genuinely had a love for art that was similar to Elizabeth Holmes Fisher who felt that art needed to be accessible for educational and inspirational reasons for formal and informal learning and this spot on Orange Grove and Colorado Boulevard would be the place for that. Great intentions and executions aside Simon slowly weeded out contemporary art and many on the board were furious about this. They had discovered that he had intentions of selling some of the contemporary works at an auction and the former trustees put out a civil suit against Norman Simon and the museum. They were claiming that Simon was seizing the physical space for his own collection and Simon seizes. (laughs) That's what the game is about, right? Art acquisitions, right? Simon didn't say seize. <laughs> but this time he did. So they're all claiming that he is seizing the physical space for his collection and selling works that didn't fit into his collection for his own personal gain. He fired back calling them irresponsible for putting the PMMA in the debt in the first place. Like, don't bring that yeah, up. Yeah, well, you're all stupid. <laughs> his only real defense against them was he did give them their time with the 25% of their collection. And now that the, the stipulation's over, he was allowed to take as much as he wanted. He paid the debt. This is now currently his museum. Go away. Now, he wasn't brought 
shot down by the civil suit, but it did sour him some. For years, there were rumors of him taking his collections out of Pasadena and moving it to San Francisco. And there were actual plans at Precious s- San Francisco. Oh, God, there's so much fog. Of, like, how are you going to see it? There were actual plans at some point to move the collection out of Pasadena and to the Getty mm-hmm. over to Westwood. But Simon withdrew from that months before it was enacted. Hard times hit him in 1984 when Simon was stricken with a neurological disorder known as the Goulan Barre syndrome. I think that's what it's called, which sounds like a painter. I know that because I can't pronounce the it. The irony. Yeah. Simon refused to be defeated by a paralyzing illness, but after some time, he was wheelchair bound. Mm. Him and his wife continued making deals for years, but in 1989, Simon resigned as the president and trustee of the Simon Museum, and he passed away in 1993. His own collection of treasures included Madonna from Raphael and an altarpiece panel by Giovanni de Paolo, the 15th century painter. The Simon Museum has over 12,000 paintings by artists like Gauguin, Matisse, Picasso. During the 1980s, his collection was appraised at $750 million. Oh. But more than the monetary value, Norton Simon has given the city of LA tomato paste and one of the best private collections of the world to see, and it's right off the 134 freeway. That's Norton Simon. Norton. 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 I like the Norton Simon Museum. Yeah, I like it a lot. I haven't been there in a while, but I, I enjoy yeah. it a lot. It's like going to LACMA is sort of like, all right, we got to do, we got to yeah. go to LACMA. We got to do this. Yeah. But Norton Simon's kind of like, eh, let's go hang out. Yeah. It's smaller. It's exactly. manageable. It's nice. It's very, it's it's in a good area and it's always off yeah. the beaten path. It's one of those museums yeah. that like you kind of forget here. Yeah. And exactly. It's not a bad thing. And it, I don't want to go see a bunch of kilobytes and how to <laughs> solve my virus problems. I don't want to go look at that. Oh my God, it's beautiful in here. I love this. And if you forget like what it looks like, just Jerry's? turn into the Rose Parade every uh, New Year's morning. You'll see the Norton Simon, yeah. which I'm sure he like bought New Year's and merged it with a better holiday. <laughs> New Year's brought to you by <laughs> Tomato your new, Paste. Your New Year brought to you by Avis Car Rentals. <laughs> Drive your way into 2016. Hey, Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> by the way, we didn't even say that. Happy New Year. What My resolution, yeah. I'm going to open up a tomato paste company, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. alienate people on the members of the board of trustees. Easy. That's easy to do. Just make promises. And be a influential woman in the city. So what do you think is step one in all that? Um, I'm going to have to join ISIS. <laughs> so I bet you're thinking, oh no, Norton Simon's dead. He was our last hope. No. There is there's another. another. <laughs> so Norton Simon. A sister. <laughs> Obi-Wan was wise to hide this museum from me. If you won't acquire our collection, maybe she will. <laughs> <laughs> we have been watching way too much Star Wars. So Norton Simon pretty much muscles contemporary art out of the Pasadena Art Museum and installs priceless works of art throughout the centuries. So of course, his sister Marsha Simon Wiseman would be the one responsible for trying to find a home in Los Angeles for contemporary art. Ain't that the thing? Is it really his sister? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I kept like, oh, it's his stepsister, right? In so many readings of Norton Simon, only like one brought up like, oh yeah, his sister is responsible for Mocha. Did you guys know that? As I said, women get enough uh, credit in <laughs> in history, okay? It was so bizarre when I'm like, okay, let's look that up Marsha Wiseman. I'm like, That's wait, al- what? <laughs> it's also weird that we just made a joke about no. it as a sister. I planned that perfectly. Oh, you, you like manipulated that? me. Yeah. Goodbye. You felt right into that. <laughs> I've been had. So long. Farewell. Avita Zane. Good night. And good luck. Yeah, so his sister, Marsha Simon Wiseman, was she's the brainchild behind the Museum of Contemporary Art, or as we know it, the Mocha. Like I was saying, like, Norton Simon is putting all these classics up. Marsha Simon Wiseman and her husband, Frederick Wiseman. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. You, you hear what I'm saying here? I mean, she gets hit in the face with a football, and suddenly we're all supposed and to feel bad for it. And, and we call it art. <laughs> but it's how she got hit. They want to concentrate their collection. Like the other guy who got shot in the arm. 
<laughs> oh, well, I kind of get it. Uh, you got shot in the arm. Well, I'm going to get hit in the nose with a football. <laughs> Think about the American symbolism. Norton Simon wants to concentrate his works on old stuff. Marsha and her husband, Frederick, they only want to collect work after 1940. In a very artsy and not helpful bio on the Mocha Alley website, they say they're a Take museum. Note, Mocha. <laughs> Hello, we're Mocha. We are a museum. We are indeed a museum. <laughs> indeed. They claim we present, collect, and interpret the art of our time. Mm. Very short bio. That's contemporary art. Vague. <laughs> Over my head. Fun. <laughs> Everyone gets it but me. So while Norton was succeeding with Valvita Foods in Los Angeles, Marsha was attending Mills College in Oakland and then began to get interested in creating an art collection of posters and prints and stuff like that. It started really small and then it got bigger the more money she had. Mm-hmm. Marsha was born in 1918, 11 years after Norton was born. She credits her stepmother, Lucille Michaels Simon, with awakening a love for art. Lucille? You don't wear your sister's... Valvita? Yeah, Velvita. You know where Velvita. I would like to eat at Velvita now. My nose. Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Lucille. Her stepmother was really responsible for putting the love of art in both Norton and Marsha. Meyer Simon, the patriarch who owned the department store with just old hair, which is not true, <laughs> would uh, travel Europe with his wife and furnish their home with antiques and etchings and stuff. So they like grew up around like art. So of course, the both of them are going to go into that eventually. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about art. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Art Carney, right? Because yeah. we have been saying Norton. I thought we were talking about Art LeBeau, the DJ. <laughs> My God. You know, we you think that we discussed something before we recorded but here we yeah. are we're just not in sync tonight no i guess not should we call it a night we don't need to talk about this stuff anymore yeah look art you fill in the rest <laughs> so in 1938 like i said she met a man quite like her brother a struggling entrepreneur named frederick wiseman who would go on to work with norton wiseman was the son of russian jewish immigrants who stressed the importance of education so after dropping out of ucla <laughs> and leaving the university of minnesota in minneapolis because he couldn't afford to keep paying tuition during the depression frederick started a small wholesale business in la and when he went at Marsha and Norton. He sold his business so he could jump aboard his stepbrother's business, which was, of course, cherry, 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 jackpot. So together, Marsha and Frederick began collecting art together, like I said, in around the late 40s. Their focus seemed to be abstract expressionists from America and European modernists. They had a Picasso, an Ernst, a Rothko, a de Kooning. Their first piece they got together was a sculpture of Jean Arps titled Self-Absorbed. The sculpture became the centerpiece of their collection of over a thousand objects that had been valued at a hundred million dollars. As their wealth rose, so did their stature in the art world. They started to become involved in the LA art community and would buy works from LA-based artists to help support the community. They became the museum trustees and would host events in their Beverly Hills home to showcase artists and allow the art community to mingle. Sex parties. <laughs> I don't know if that's right. We know what that means. <laughs> Frederick managed to... Art su- loving and ready to mingle. <laughs> art LeBeau, right? Art Garney and ready to mingle. <laughs> Reporting for... Beauty. <laughs> Reporting to booty. <laughs> Frederick managed to secure himself a presidency at Hunt's Food at the age of 31, which hurts me to think about. But he left the position. Oh, you, you haven't run a canned food company yet? It wasn't canned. It was bottled. Ugh. You don't know anything about business. He left the position in 1958 after his investment in uranium paid off. I didn't even know you could do that. A now wealthy man, Frederick, played his hand at different ventures. He was part owner of Cal Financial Group at some point. He bought a racetrack in San Francisco, but he hit another stride in the 70s as the head of the Mid-Atlantic Toyota Distributors Incorporated. Uranium and a Toyota dealership. Let's not forget that he also worked at Hunt's Food for years. It's funny how Frederick and Norton seem to have the same motivation. One is obviously more prolific, but Marsha seemed to help keep 
Frederick grounded, although I don't know how grounded it is to spend millions of dollars on art, but whatever. <laughs> Marsha and Frederick's collection and involvement seem to be closer to artists, and that's because their eye for contemporary artists meant that the artists were still alive. Norton had a taste for art, but his artists were like long dead already. <laughs> because they were collecting contemporary art, they can get to know the person who was getting work, so they like seamlessly moved into the art community. But all this time that they were collecting art and having these parties, they really wanted a place that they can display contemporary pieces for the public to see because you can't just walk into the Wiseman's home. So they're looking for a place, especially Marsha. Marsha is another one of these progressive women that's really pushing for like, I want art to educate people and I want everyone to see it and we need a place to do this. And then the husbands go, well, how can we monetize this? (laughs) How can I take that emotion and make money from it? And also, why are you speaking? Yeah. You're a woman and this is any time before 2000. The Spice Girls changed everything. <laughs> You're a woman. All I want to hear is guitar solos. There's one story I heard about Frederick, and, and it makes me laugh. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm just going to say it. And you you take it as is, okay? All right. He gets seriously... Draft your emails now. Apparently, in 1966, there was a brawl at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which comes up again, the, the hotel. And he was knocked unconscious and seriously injured. He had to go to the hospital, and he wasn't, being, he wasn't reviving. Now, according to the story, he laid in the hospital bed for several days without recognizing any friends or family. But when Marsha came by with a Jackson Paul drawing to the hospital because she knew that was the one like his favorite he shouted jackson pollock i remember when we bought that and he was, he was revi- old church tent revival jackson pollock does it again so the mocha's birth can be traced to a conversation between marcia mayor tom bradley who was los angeles first black mayor and a councilman named joel walks at a political event being held at the beverly hills hotel in either 1978 or 1979 i've read both some say it was fate that they all sat at the same table but i also read somewhere that the wisemans already knew and were chumming with the mayor and that's plausible so i'm not really sure what is for sure is that during this conversation regarding Los Santos and a need for a place to house contemporary art, she managed to persuade Bradley and Walks to give her support to move forward on putting together a new art museum. That conversation got the ball rolling and a committee known as the Mayor's Museum Advisory Committee was organized to get the project seen through. Now, attorney and later federal judge William Norris and friend Eli Brode joined Wiseman's effort early on. He's everywhere. Yeah. He's like Slender Man. My favorite supernatural villain. <laughs> if I had to pick one supernatural villain, it would be Slender Man. So William Norris and Eli Broad are going to join a committee that is also made up of Chief Curator Richard Koshalek, Venture Capitalist and Art Collector Max Pelveski. Also on the board was Atlantic Richfield Co., or as we know, Arco. Oh. And the Wisemans, of course. And they were running this committee out of an office on Boyd Street, and it was known as the Museum of Contemporary Art. With Mayor Bradley and Walks supporting the committee, the Community Redevelopment Agency, which is set up to help revitalize, refurbish, and new economically underserved areas of Los Angeles decided to provide support and pay for the construction for 1.5% of the allocation from the Bunker Hill development. They're going to use that money to fund that whole area with that whole strip. And yeah, like I said, 1.5 of that was going to go to the Mocha being built on Grand. So by July of 1981, two years after the conversation at the Beverly Hills Hotel, Mocha's endowment was already past the $12 million mark. The spot chosen would be on Grand Avenue between 3rd and 4th at the top of the multi-leveled Bunker Hill, which was during the 80s. It was already all sky skyscrapers and ponytails cell phones in the car <laughs> the buildings had ponytails <laughs> i think we made that joke before have we i think that sounds really well, it's official <laughs> we're, we're officially repeating our own jokes i thought you were gonna say it's official the skyscrapers had ponytails hey it's been mentioned twice it must be true <laughs> the only stipulation to get this development money was that the committee had to raise 10 million dollars for operations <laughs> so These they guys had were... the biggest car wash <laughs> this city has ever seen <laughs> they washed every car in the city the committee now had the task of garnering important raising funds and Marsha was getting aid from big names Jane Fonda was one of the names she was on the board that of the traitor 
<laughs> Don't talk about Barbarella that way. She was on the board of the California Arts Council. She wrote a letter of support. Marsha received support from Governor Jerry Brown. She got a lot of words of support from local artists and dealers, museum officials from other cities, university administrations, local businesses, Hollywood elite. Like everyone was sort of getting on board to do this because there were in a lot of places really to watch. on Broad? They're going to be. During this time of incredible growth for the new museum, the Wisemans were going through an amicable divorce and splitting mm-hmm. their art collections half. One of the pains she took with... Every painting is cut in <laughs> half. <laughs> it's well, the only logical way. We love art, but... <sighs> This divorce has to happen, and we don't know how else to do it. One of the paintings that she took with her was a piece from Jasper Johns titled Map, which is said to be the most important piece in her collections. Jasper Johns sells his work for millions of dollars, and this is one of the works that she would donate to the MoCA. I feel like that should be said just to show like how dedicated she was to get this going, that she has this million-dollar piece. like, it's fine. Just hang it up. Mm-hmm. I want everyone to take a look at this it. This will be your centerpiece. <laughs> Here's where things start to splinter off. The city leased two warehouses to the museum committee, one on Grand that was being designed by Japanese architect Arata Isozaki and the other one being in Little Tokyo. They're in the construction of the main branch, that's the uh, the grand one. The Little Tokyo branch, known as the Temporary Contemporary, had an interim exhibition in 1983. Wait, the contemporary, the temporary contemporary? Yeah, the temporary contemporary. Okay. They had a sort of soft opening internum exhibition in 1983, three years before the opening of the main branch. The 40,000 square foot building from the 40s had once been a hardware store and another time housed police cars. Renovating it would be the famous architect Frank Gehry and then merely won over critics and captivated the art community. The building inauguration included a Shinto purification ceremony, which is a ritual often held at the groundbreaking of any building in Little Tokyo. It's a symbol of a mutual recognition between the Japanese community and the museum. The site on ground was looking great too, as Isozaki was building a structure to contrast the museum as opposed to the skyscrapers that were above it. The museum was like red sandstone, and its entrance is like an arc which leads to a lower level courtyard and having patrons sort of submerge, like going lower as everyone else is going higher. Everything about it's like, you're not next to a skyscraper. So in 1986, the Mocha Grand opened up, and it was sort of carried off from what the temporary contemporary had already started. They were almost instantly heavy players in the art community, with two great structures that housed thousands of pieces of contemporary art at different media. A collection which I believe is 90% privately donated. They were acquiring collections that included work from Franz Klein, Robert Rauschenberg, Michelle Gorky, Jackson Pollock. Marsha Wiseman donated 83 works on paper by contemporary artists, which raised the Mocha standings in the art community. Her collection was appraised at around $6 million. After hearing all the other stuff jump change yeah I'm not impressed nah nothing sorry Miss Weissman I apologize profusely don't tell your brother he owns the podcast now (laughs) the Mocha really had four collections in particular to thank for their stature Marsha's collection the Giuseppe Panza collection the collection of Beatrice and Philip Gersh and the Rita and Taft Schweiber collection these four really comprised the Mocha thing that spreads throughout each of their facilities in 1986 as well the city of LA granted the Mocha a 25 year lease I believe which they continually renew I think like the lease is now goes to like 2038 and they only have to pay from what I understand a dollar for each day that it's open in the year I believe. In 1991 Marsha dies of a stroke in lieu of flowers. The family's asking well-wishers and loved ones to donate to the MOCA or the new Cedar Sinai Medical Center for the Art Fund. Philanthropist of the end. And I like her. I like her too. Everyone likes Marsha. Everyone likes Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Her like final request sort of sets off this idea of like the remaining years of the MOCA where they're always looking for money. <laughs> it's what she would have wanted. That's right. It's what Marsha would have wanted. It's more money. <laughs> 1996, Temporary Contemporary gets changed to the Mocha Geffen after film executive from DreamWorks, David Geffen, gave the museum $5 million to DreamWorks keep going. SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. Ooh. Is that what that SKG's for? Yeah. No idea. I kind of don't like them anymore. <laughs> well, I'm a Pixar kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I like cars. The movie, right? What? 
I like one car, that backseat of that Dodge from 1938. <laughs> my favorite part of any car. In 2000, they opened another facility in West Hollywood at the Pacific Design Center. That's a big blue building. That's yeah, the big blue the whale. Big, yeah, the big blue whale. It. Yeah, that's <laughs> weird. Like I've only I've only seen that building like twice in my life. Really? Because I don't know why I never end up there. Yeah. And yeah. every time I see it, I'm like, what is this doing here? Yeah, it's so inconveniently placed. It's like uh, I don't know if you or anyone listening remembers the TV show Reboot from the 90s. <laughs> I remember yeah but it's like when a game starts this giant blue cube comes and looks like lands in the middle of the city and that's what i feel like that is and i want in <laughs> i want in on the game the pacific design center is a 3,000 square foot exhibition space in west hollywood as i said that presents new work by emerging and established artists they also have a theater there like 384 theater that like has a different range for like programs for the public which is really cool let the public have their programs this whole decade though the last 20 years since that's open they've had so much financial trouble with so much like bad management and a huge overhead. I remember reading in one of the articles that they've achieved everything they've won except one thing which is making it all in one building which is something I'm sure like Lack the cost can of relate the, to. Yeah. <laughs> now two of the museum directors that get like take the biggest hits are Jeffrey Deitch and Jeremy Strick. Jeremy Strick runs from 1999 to 2008 and Jeremy Deitch runs from 2010 to 2013 and both these guys take a lot of hits. There's a lot of articles about people not liking them. The biggest problem is that like LACMA is partly controlled by the county. MOCA receives very little funding from the government. Its budget annually has grown past like $20 million and it relies so much on donors. Like about 80% of the expenses has to come from donors. So like if they don't have enough pool from donors, they're going to be really weak. The problem that really knocked them on their ass though was a recession, which is a sense I'm getting more used to is like instead of depression, now we have a recession. Mm -hmm. It just flattened all this cushion that the museum has. Their investment portfolio was worth about $20 million in mid-2007 which was down from 36, which was mid-2000. Before the recession hit, Strick said that MoCA was gearing up for its first major endowment campaign since the mid-90s, which it would manage to raise like $25 million. But now, because people were getting conservative with their money, so they were not willing to donate like millions of dollars like they were before. In trying to secure its strong footing in the art community, the people in charge of MoCA became careless with funds and expenses. While curatorial staff was putting out popular expeditions, their expenses outbalanced their revenues. And when times got tough for everybody, they dipped into their own endowment to keep afloat. So now like all this money they had to keep going that they like, oh, this is our safe money. They start dipping into it. And that's pretty much the troubles that they're in now. Mayor Villagrosa and Garcetti and most of the city of LA are pleading with the MoCA to find a way to get out of their dire straits. LACMO has offered to merge with the MoCA, which they said no. And then Broad offered them $50 million to help bail them out, which I believe they accepted. Yeah. Good for them. They need it. Well, then he sort of stabbed them in the back. MoCA's a great museum. Well, MoCA's three great museums. <laughs> but yeah, these last 20 years for have been such a struggle. Oh, sorry, what year are we in? The last 16 years of this place have been really hard for it. MoCA has had like three of my favorite shows came out of MoCA, so I have to like be a little easy on them. They had Under the Big Black Sun, which was California art between 1974 and 1981, which is a really good one. They did the Art in the Streets thing that we mm-hmm. liked a lot, the one that had Banksy and Banksy. Barry McGee. And MoCA on Grand had the Masters of American Comics exhibit. They're always really modern, always really different from everybody else. I like MoCA a lot. It's another sort of underground, like not obvious choice of yes. museum to go to. Yeah, especially the MoCA Geffen, because yeah. it's so you like know, I warehousey. Didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. even know other than the, the street art thing. I was like, all right, so they used it for that and they're never using it again. <laughs> like, I didn't know that there's regularly yeah. stuff going on. That there. was part of the appeal, they said, was that like, because it's the warehouse, it was once as a warehouse district before it was like the arts district or, you know, yeah. even Little Tokyo wanted to claim it. Bronzeville. Exactly. That. No, that's right. <laughs> you, know, you remembered. That building is sort of purposefully pl- 
plain off putting. Off putting, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this Eli uh Broad. Well, we've been dancing around Broad and his fingerprints are everywhere. Let's get into who this sticky fingered man yes, is. Please. He's one of the hero slash villains of the Lacma story. Yeah. Let's get more yeah. into him and see just how big of a hero villain he is. Okay. Eli Broad was born June 6, 1933 in the Bronx, but his family soon moved and he was raised in the wasteland of Detroit. Oh, that explains so much. His parents were not rich. His mom was a dressmaker. His dad worked at Five and Dimes. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, yeah, pick yeah. and save. Oh, to it's you. like an A&P. <laughs> As a kid, little Eli worked selling women's shoes and being a delivery Al boy. Bundy's little Al Bundy. <laughs> he was a delivery boy and stuff like that until he graduated from Michigan State University mm-hmm. and fulfilled every little boy in Detroit's dream and became an accountant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give me that tie. Where's my cubicle seat? <laughs> he got married to his wife, Edith, and was an accountant for two years before he saw the that there was more money to be made in real estate. So he borrowed $25,000 from Edith's parents in 1957 and joined up with his wife's cousin's husband, which I don't even know, like, do you yeah. even meet that person in uh, your life? No, never. It's not even on the family tree. <laughs> that branch has been pruned. <laughs> this guy's name is Donald Kaufman. They joined up to start a real estate business, Kaufman and Broad Home Corps, or as it's now known, KB Home. They saw that the baby boomers were becoming of the age to start buying houses. So in Detroit, they started building houses with no basements and carports instead of garages, which I don't know what a carport is. Is that where you park your spaceship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you tie it to uh, so it doesn't float away, right? (laughs) It's where you park your Zeppelin, (laughs) which is what everyone in Detroit uses because it's post-apocalyptic. I thought that you couldn't land them so you crashed them. Is that why the Hindenburg's such a big deal? Because I thought you were supposed to do that. (laughs) Where's the carport? Oh, the humanity! (laughs) So without these things, it made them much more affordable than a regular house. They sold 14 houses in their first weekend. Wow. They eventually started selling these homes in Arizona, California, and France for some reason. They have homes there. Have, I thought uh, it was just baguettes. You hollow one out <laughs> when you're 18 and you like a hermit crab. The sign that you're a man. So KB... Uh, uh, oh, oh. And KB Home became the first home building company to be traded on the American and New York stock exchanges. And by age 27, Eli Broad was a millionaire. In 1971, Broad decided to diversify and bought a life insurance company called Sun Life Insurance Company for $52 million. In the 80s, Kaufman retired. And in 89, Broad stepped down as CEO of KB Home and decided to focus entirely on Sun Life. Continuing with his catering to baby boomers, he saw that people were living longer, so he retooled the Sun Life as a retirement savings company and rebranded it Sun America, oh. making him the... Oh. O- you know them? Yeah. What, what, what do you... You do business I, with them? Yeah. I, maybe I've just seen a logo on old fruit crate labels or something. I don't... Maybe, maybe I don't I think know you're them. thinking of Sun Kissed. Sun America? Sun America. It's a... S-U-N or S-O-N? S-U-N. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's retirement savings. What would you know? So doing this made him the only person to build two Fortune 500 companies. In 1999, he sold Sun America to AIG for $18 billion. (laughs) It's a laughable amount of money because it's so little. After he made this deal, he left the business world to focus on what he called, what he still calls venture philanthropy. Oh, oh my God, that's a scary term. He's lived in LA since 1963. He's the third wealthiest man in the city. He's valued at about $7.5 billion. What does he look like? Do I know this guy? He looks a little bit like Yoda, really. Really? Like a human-toned Yoda. Okay, he looks like a Frank Oz collection. Yeah. 
episode creation. Sorry, I've said collection so much in the last hour. <laughs> he's puppet like. He's number sixty five on the twenty fifteen Forbes four hundred list. God. Even before he devoted his life to charity, and then later pledged in twenty ten to give away seventy five percent of his fortune, along yeah. with people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. He had always been giving a lot. He's gotten many honors for his work. Like in nineteen ninety four, he was named by France a chevalier in the National Order of the Legion of Honor. He got a Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy in 2007. In 2003, he gave $600 million to start the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard for medical research. Yeah. In 2008, he gave USC $80 million to start a stem cell research center. From 2004 to 2009, he was the regent of the Smithsonian as appointed by the U.S. Congress and the president. Wow. He's given away over $2 billion so far. Half of that, he's given to organizations in L.A. His offices are in the Fox Plaza in Century City. KB Home even has a building across the street from the Hammer Museum, which is strange. Yeah. For now, let's talk about his work in the art world. Yes, please. Brode was never interested in art. Oh, okay. Well, that's awful. <laughs> but he has so much of that. But I his don't wife understand. was. His oh, wife was interested in it. And husband. then gradually she got him interested in it as well. Their first important art purchase was on October 25th, 1972, of an 1888 Van Gogh drawing for $95,000. The collection started out all over the place, but they eventually focused on post-World War II art, like uh, Weissman. Yeah. In 1984, they started the Broad Art Foundation, which now has some 2,000 works by over 200 artists, valued at around, this is the topper of them all, it's valued at around $2.5 billion that they've loaned out to over 500 museums around the world, and it's still growing by about one new piece every week. Really? They, get. they bought up tons of work. In 1995, he bought a Liechtenstein for $2.5 million, and he charged it with his American American Express card and got 2.5 million frequent flyer miles. One trip around the galaxy. <laughs> he even bought a bunch of art from Norton Simon. Really? He gave $20 million to UCLA's art program. Mm -hmm. He was the founding chairman of MOCA. Well, one of the founding yeah, chairman yeah. of MOCA until he stepped down in 1984. He helped get the Hammer Museum on its feet also in 1990 by selling its prized illustrated manuscript by Leonardo da Vinci to none other than Bill Gates for $30.8 really? million. He's like trick-or-treating at different museums. Yeah, he's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Here I am, trick-or-treat. <laughs> Here's $50 million. Just kidding. It's mine. <laughs> Trick. Trick and treat. <laughs> there was the debacle of donations and yeah, funding yeah, yeah. at LACMA. He bailed out MOCA in 2008. Yeah. He's been called LA's modern day Medici. The Broad collection was housed at 3355 Barnard Way in Santa Monica, but Eli started getting notions shortly after what happened at LACMA that he wanted a museum all to his own to display his collection proudly. When this was announced in August 2010, locations all over the city were streaking their Pollocks to get to him to set up shop in their place. The lead contenders were Beverly Hills. They were going to put it on the southeast corner of Wilshire and Santa Monica. Santa Monica, not the street, oh. they wanted to put it next to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Okay, and yeah, Culver yeah. City, they wanted it on the campus of West LA College, which uh, that would have been weird. Yeah, no one knows how to get there. The Nine students. <laughs> they don't know how to get out of there. <laughs> the location Broad went with was 221 South Grand Avenue, across the street from both the Disney Hall and MoCA. Oh, okay. He chose this spot because he just wanted to crush MoCA. Yeah. <laughs> he chose it because for years, 
years, he's been lobbying for that area to become the cultural hub of the city. You know how hard is a park around there? In 1996, he was even the one who helped start the fundraising to build the Disney Hall in the first place. Plus, like we said, he helped start MoCA. Some people see the opening of the Broad here as the final piece in the transformation of Bunker Hill into a cultural mecca Mm -hmm. that started some 50 or 60 years ago when all the Victorian homes were removed. So this is the conclusion to that episode. Even more so, once the Metro stop on Hope Street opens in 2020, that's, there goes your parking. You don't need it. Take your hoverboard. The land it's on was going to be some housing and shops and a hotel, but that project got stopped by the recession. The Broad paid $7.7 million for a 99-year lease, which is People like that. They got yeah. a 99-year lease on the land. They upset the Shen Yun Performing Arts, oh. who had been trying to get that spot to build a theater and felt that the city went with Broad without giving them a fair shot yeah. for it. But money is money and Broad is white, so the Broad <laughs> Museum was a go. He doesn't do all that weird stuff. I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't dance around in robes, <laughs> as far as I know. They, <laughs> they had a competition to pick who would design the building. Rem Koolhaas was Ooh. a finalist, but they went with Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro. The the same people who designed the High Line in New York, which oh. is pretty cool. The Diller in that name was also the architectural consultant in the movie Her, who envisioned oh. the future of downtown LA in that movie. Yeah. So you won, Spike Jones. Yeah, like always. Construction began in 2012 on the design they call the Veil and the Vault, with the porous outside of it being the Veil and the collection inside being the Vault. It costs 140 million dollars and has is that a lot of money. Or something? It has three stories. It covers 120,000 square feet with 50,000 of that being public gallery space. Okay. The first and third floors are the public galleries, and the second is where the offices and the archives of the Broad Art Foundation now are. So that's where all the racks are. Oh, I see. Yeah, there they are. Why are they in the middle? Well, here's the thing. You go upstairs, and then when you're coming back down, you go down this giant staircase, and you can like look in and see the archive, and like, oh, why aren't I seeing that? (laughs) There's also a lecture hall on the second floor that is denoted on the outside of the building by a large indentation in the facade known as the Oculus. Don't make eye contact with the (laughs) Oculus. They wanted the building to look textured and matte as opposed to the sleek shininess of the Disney Hall next door. The facade was a big point of contention during the construction. The museum was supposed to open in 2014, but the subcontractor, Seal Inc., who also did the Apple Cube in Manhattan and the Bird's Nest Stadium for the Beijing Olympics. I'm not sure where those were. (laughs) They switched the material of the outside from glass fiber, reinforced concrete to precast concrete, but then found that was too hard to do, so then they switch back to the original glass fiber and in doing so the opening was delayed for 15 months so in june 2014 broad sued them for the 20 million dollars in extra costs that the delay incurred then the company countersued broad for 10 million they say they're still owed for the construction expenses so out of this happy arrangement the broad opened on september 20th 2015 with joanne Haler as the director and a 200 million dollar endowment which is almost as big as that of lacma and mocha's combined and the second biggest in the city's history after J. Paul Getty's $700 million to yeah. start the J. Paul Getty Trust. There was a keynote speech at the opening by Bill Clinton. Former President Bill Clinton? Uh, no, I meant George Clinton. <laughs> but how is the actual museum? Yes, please. The downstairs has the more recent work, and the top floor has 19 galleries arranged chronologically. There's Warhols, Coons, Jasper Johns, and a lot of Liechtensteins. Yeah. A lot of work from LA artists also. Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirrored Room is supposed to be a highlight in a museum but overall the consensus is that the collection on display is pretty underwhelming wow 
Wow. Broad's collection has always been criticized for being significant, but kind of cliched. Though they do have a lot of works by individual artists, it's the same artists that everyone collects. Broad has been called by aficionados to be a cultural leader in LA, but a cultural follower in the art world. Uh Mm -hmm. They say the museum isn't daring enough in displaying a more personalized collection, which, you know, you should expect from a museum made up of someone's personal collection. And instead, what's on display is a chronicle of what has been popular in the art market for the last 50 years. It's like a guy who says his favorite album is a greatest hits from a band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bob Marley legend. (laughs) That's it. That's it for me. Bowie Changes is like my favorite (laughs) album. As a byproduct of this, female and non-white artists aren't very well represented Uh because the art market largely ignores them. And since it's basically an art market thing. Yeah. Also, a lot of the art is very new and the lasting significance of these works is yet to be proven. Plus, a lot of this was already on display at LACMA in 2001 and 2008. So it's basically just a storage facility that displays some of its goods. Yeah. But the good thing is, is that there is so much in storage and they still loan out a lot of their work to other museums. So what's on display is likely to be a little bit different every time you go there. Oh, that's cool. They also intend to work hand in hand with MoCA in the future. So interesting things are maybe yeah. still to come or crushed. Regardless, admission is free, so there aren't even any tickets available until February. And if you want to go on a weekend, uh, set your hopes to March. <laughs> there is a same-day walk-up line, though, if anything opens up. Probably won't. Is that why I haven't gone yet? Oh, someone explained why I couldn't go, and I said, okay. <laughs> You're not welcome. <laughs> now, Broad has done a lot of good, for sure. But before we go painting him as the best thing to happen to the city, let's look at the other side of Please, him. He's my favorite part. He has a bit of a negative <laughs> reputation amongst the people he's worked with. He's known to be controlling and to give in order to get in return a world run in the way that he thinks is best. He's been called Eli Strings Attached Broad, (laughs) but not many people really feel comfortable denying him much because he is probably the most powerful man in the city right now. He's tried several times to buy the LA Times, but they have had the courage to refuse him. People still exist like that? They're like, I want to buy the paper. I want it. Yeah. (laughs) The the press is mine. (laughs) He hired Frank Gehry to build his house in Brentwood, but Broad ended up firing Gehry and- And using the plans he had made to get someone else to build the house, Gary said of him, Eli is a control freak. I didn't want to do it. This uh, wonderful odd couple was paired up yet again on the construction of the Disney Hall, where Broad once again fired Gary, but Disney made him hire him back. (laughs) You make up with your brother. (laughs) I don't don't want to. (laughs) Well, Mickey says you should. And you don't want to mess with Mickey because Mickey is tough. I might have four fingers, but I'm not going to use them. Aside from the Disney Hall... Oh, we're being sued by Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from the Disney Hall, Broad is also known for getting the worst-looking buildings out of the world's best architects, the ones at LACMA, case in point. One thing he's doing that is actually harmful, other than just irritating Frank Gehry, is what he's trying to do to LA's public schools. In 1999, he and his wife formed the Eli and Edith Broad Foundation to give money to schools, which is good. But his dream plan as part of the Uh Great Public Schools Now initiative is to make... 50% 50% of LA's public schools charter over the next eight years, no. which mi- it might sound nice, you know, charter schools, I guess, kind of do better. But what this does is it basically makes these schools operate as for-profit businesses where they would not be publicly accountable. And instead of listening to what the parents and the public and the students want, they only have to report to what the major funders want. And since they are charter schools and only 50% of the schools will be like this, they get to choose which students get to attend um. these schools. 
schools. Only some kids will get to go to these schools and the rest, most likely the poorer kids, will have to go to regular public school, which will be put in an even more dire state of operations because the charter schools are going to start leeching out students and resources, which would lead to even less funding for the public schools. Yeah. Broad was even fined a million dollars in 2013 for illegally providing funding to defeat Prop 30, which would have raised taxes to help fund public schools, including their art programs, which Broad professes to love so much, he built a whole museum devoted yeah. to it. He's also said he supports higher taxes, so going against higher taxes is kind of a weird move, isn't yeah. it? The United Teachers Los Angeles Union is vocally against Broad. A thousand teachers, students, and parents protested at the opening of his new museum. While they aren't against promoting art and funding schools, they are against the idea of having better options for 50% of the kids in the city and yeah. not 100% of the kids in the city. They see the answer here not as more charter schools who can reject any student that they want, but more funding for public schools who accept everybody. So keep that in mind while you're enjoying your precious Lichtensteins at the Vale in the Vault. Well, 50% of you can. Whoever has the most in their pocket. <laughs> Broad. Broad. Bro. Broad. 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 So th- that's uh, sort of the big museum And the people behind them. The people behind them. That started with Fisher, paved the way for LACMA existing, mm-hmm. and then out of LACMA branched these other ones. We'll get to Arm and Hammer. Yes, we will. I've learned so much about how museums operate, and it's fun in a way to collect and yeah. grow and like that, but there's just so much drama so many egos yeah go to these places they're, they're neat yeah. don't just listen to us tell you about it yeah although we paint a beautiful <laughs> image of what is out there these are really great places lacma's great especially Mocha's go see great. lacma before yeah. it all gets torn down <laughs> i mean it is it's it's not you don't go there and be like oh wow look at the building but, yeah you know who looks at buildings these exactly. days nobody nobody ever since they cut their ponytails whoever looks at a building <laughs> norton simon's great it's a lot it's a very relaxing place yeah. go to the fisher to check out the 2020 assessment Lerando from Lita Albuquerque, which is coming up. It sounds like it's going to be neat. You might find us Make there. Make the right turn to Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah, Mocha's great. Broad, if you ever get in. I know a lot of people are boycotting it. A lot of yeah. people won't go there. Broad sounds like a character in like a Chandler novel. He's such a high <laughs> yeah. society creep. He's got some dirty business. He's got dirty business. And he eats kids. Mm-hmm. Mm, boy, don't we all? And he eats kids. <laughs> uh Confirmed. Confirmed. That's not just a rumor. I've seen it. He goes into the lizard people's tunnels and he eats kids that go to charter schools. You heard it here. Breaking the news. L.A. Meekly like nobody else. If you don't like going into tunnels and having to eat kids there, and if you want to do it in public, yeah. transition that sentence and leave us a review on iTunes. You transition that thing right away. <laughs> leave us a review on iTunes. We it helps us get that. noticed by more people. It makes it easier for people to find us on iTunes. It helps out a lot. LA Meekly on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. LA underscore Meekly on Instagram. Follow our Tumblr blog, which follows most of these episodes, LA Meekly at Tumblr.com. Send us an email, la.meekly at gmail.com. What other ways can people get hold of us? I feel like every time. Uh, Carrier Pigeon, Pony Express, mm, shouting tele- Transatlantic Cable. Shouting from a boxcar in the 40s. You can we'll, we'll you'll find you. us. Yeah. Put up the LA Meekly bat symbol that's yeah. on top of City Hall. It's shaped like, also shaped like City Hall, which is kind of confusing, <laughs> yeah. but we'll get it. It's shaped like a cloud. <laughs> we never really know. That's it for us uh, this month of January. I hope to see you in February. Welcome to 2016. It started... Uh, it's gonna hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make our predictions for what's going to happen in 2016 summer of 2016 go harry potter is re-released in theaters all as one movie
It's the biggest box office hit since Lion King. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed a very art-packed episode. Yeah, I hope and you go out there and collect some pieces of yeah, for yourself. start your own collection. Yeah, yeah. You you heard how to do it. Yeah. Start a business, mm-hmm. make millions of dollars, and collect art. What's the big deal? Just survive the depression and the recession, and you're good. Because <laughs> they're coming back. <laughs> it's 2016. The digression. <laughs> the great digression. <laughs> Which is what this has been. And thank you for listening to yet another episode of L.A. Meekly from Hunt's Camp tomatoes to Warhol's tomato soup since 2013. Everyone has their 15 minutes or their two hours. <laughs> <laughs>